for another Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story stream. It is a pleasure to have you. I've spent the last hour and a half reading over the story, going back through some of my notes, um, and I'm pretty excited. Actually, kept reading. I got way ahead of where we are right now, and I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about this part, and oh, I forgot this was coming up, and so I was very excited to get to relive a little bit myself that I had not forgotten about, or had not remembered, or I had forgotten about. Uh, but uh, it should be plenty of fun today. Today, I am expecting us to finish up the air, uh, the Kingdom of Corman section of the story, whatever that means. Uh, I won't specify, but uh, I believe that uh, we are entering Lower City, and we should have uh, some pretty uh, pretty cool tales to tell. Uh, but again, thank you for coming by. If you haven't already, please remember, if you enjoy yourself today, to click the like button. Be sure to subscribe if you've not already. And also, uh, hit that little bell notification so you know all the times that we go live and such. Um, let me see, what else? Uh, we have a Discord channel that you can get to by going to my website, onlydraven.com. Uh, button at the top, click on that. Come on in, we'd love to have you. Whether it's Merge Worlds, Minecraft, or just wanting to chat, uh, plenty of different places and people to talk to. Uh, Turtle says, quick off-topic question, have you resolved the PC problems? Not exactly. Um, I think we've narrowed it down to it's an, potentially an issue with something overheating. Um, re moving everything around the stream and such had also bumped a wire loose on the actual power unit. I've got that fixed. And I was able to get on and play a game for about an hour today, and then it cracked. Then the game died once. I played for another hour with no other problems. Right now, I'm running with the uh, glass off the side to see if that makes a difference. Uh, but I don't ever have problems just doing this. It's when the games are playing that's that's really kind of strains it. So I will say, if anything were to occur, and I was to mysteriously and magically suddenly disappear tonight, uh, give me a couple of minutes and I will throw another uh, stream up, and we'll continue on. Uh, MT, want to say hi before my crappy unit makes me lag behind you. <laughs> no problem, MT. I appreciate that you're here. All right, well, quick recap. Uh, once again, our heroes uh, continued down deeper into the dwarven kingdom of Coromon, a land that for 200 years the dwarves have not been able to enter and retake back because there was some unknown type of enemy or presence below that, uh, you know, just kills everybody. So they've been living above ground. Our heroes are uh, rumbling through there trying to find the source of this issue and cleanse it or kill it or remove it, depending on what it is, uh, in the hopes of helping the dwarves get their kingdom back because the dwarves will need access to their kingdom for the dwarven mastersmith Duberin to be able to repair the broken magical spear Menandra, um, which is the first step in saving our Dandelion's husband, Michael, whose soul is trapped inside the broken pieces of the artifact. And hello, Michael. Um, so last episode, they hit Central Coromon, the second uh, city or giant cavern, if you will. Um, they searched different... Uh, clan areas and ran into some trouble in a couple of uh, places um, but they managed to uh, survive Menander is a spear oh yeah, Menander is a spear that uh, is much longer than it should be for Michael because Michael is naturally short and when Dandy picked it up um, way back in the part with uh, 
Daedalus, Draven's brother. Uh, that's one of the things I mentioned. She, she was whipping, because she has a hoopack specialty, holding Menandra, uh, which is a spear, because it's a it's a like a blackish gray stone. It's light. It's st- stronger than wood. It's more of an actual wooden stone. It's made of the, what they're here to get, kelt wood. And then the um, blade of it is uh, like a, it's almost like a, 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 a purple metal that glows and becomes crystal-like and has blue, bluish-purple flames coming off it whenever it, you know, links with its wielder. Uh, but it is definitely long, and he wields it on his back. I remember way back when he first popped in, we first, he showed up. Uh, they were in Serenity before it was Serenity, trying to go into that giant temple where all the evil stuff and undead, all these zombies were rising. He came running through, and he had that, and he whipped that spear down on the ground. It just caused a wave, and undead went flying. Uh, Menandra's pretty, pretty powerful. Of all the weapons and magic items and stuff they, all the characters have, Menandra is the most powerful artifact out of all of them. Being intelligent uh, and being able to speak to Michael being a big reason for that. Always a hint that you've got something powerful in your hand if it can think. Uh, but they managed to search the middle level of Corman, defeated several large uh, and scary monster type things. Uh, but they did not find the source of the issue. And so they have now entered into the tunnels, heading down to Lower Corman, the last and largest cavern of the three dwarven. Levels, if you will. A Corman is a kingdom. It's not a city. Upper city, central city, and lower city are all parts of Corman, but it can take a couple days to travel. Uh, much like an above-ground kingdom, where you have major cities and such, you can travel across your lands to get to the other towns and villages in your city. Same concept for Corman, except it's all underground. Um, <clears throat> uh, lower cities is also uh, the access to the mines, uh, which... I mean, there's some mining on all levels. They're, at this point, deep, deep underground. Um, but the main mines, the primary mines, are under Lower Corman. That's where the dwarves delve deep. And for those of you who are wondering, no, they did not dig too deep. I understand it sounds a lot like Lord of the Rings. That is not what cost anything here. They did not delve too deep. <laughs> is not the source of this problem. I've been asked, so I wanted to clarify that. Um... So, yes. Actually, see if I've still got it. I'm not sure if I've still got it here. Um, here we go, turtle. So there's a, a just a brief idea of what Michael looks like in undead Menandra mode. Uh, he wears all the, these black leathers uh, with a high collar which protects his, knight, his neck from bites and stuff. Same with his arms and things. Uh, Menandra, unfortunately, there's no way for me to make the spear way bigger when I was designing these, because i got to use what uh, options I have. Uh, but the spear is actually almost twice that long. But that's the overall concept of it. <clears throat> Did they dig through the bottom of the world? Very good question. They have not. And at this point, no one is known to have ever gone that deep. When they went down deep, deep, deep to get to where Rafe Firemoon... Uh, was kind of trapped in uh, uh, quartz or that whatever that stone stuff was. Uh, they had maybe gone a quarter of the way down. It's it's very very tall. Again, it's shaped like a chalice. The top of it is flat, and that's massive. Like it takes years to cross all of that. And then 
in the center of it is the central lake where the water actually flows up. Water falls off the edge of the world, comes down and bowls up and comes through the center of the world. And as it's coming up through the world, it branches off in much like you'd expect from a sponge and flows up and, and into a lot of the rivers and lakes and oceans on Merged World uh, are usually fed from underneath. And so the water flows to the oceans and off the edge. Uh, although at this point, no one's ever been to the edge or seen what happens if you were to go off of it. That's something reserved for the future. <laughs> but no one has ever tried at this point. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Where you're probably thinking Dagger Turtle is where when they were going to kill Daedalus, they had to get that crystal dagger that they could put in flame. It was an artifact that they could put into different things and then Draven ended up putting his blood in it and that's how they killed Daedalus. The blood of his kin would destroy him as the, the part of the prophecy. So you might have mixed, that might be the dagger you were thinking of. So, let's uh, step into the lower kingdom, if you will. We have some dwarven action today. Hot, hot dwarven action uh, to get into. Uh, so, just as it was going from Upper Corman to Central Corman, uh, it took several days of travel. Going to Lower Corman um, is a little bit shorter of a distance, but um, what it does have that is it's, there's only one way down, and it's a much wider tunnel. And it kind of spirals some, but again, none of these kingdoms are directly above each other. You have Upper, then you travel a distance to Middle, and then you travel a difference to Lower. Uh, but they're all inside this massive mountain range. Um, and they're not all like a straight line, like top, middle, small. It'll be up, and then over here is middle. Up, and then over here is middle, and then lowers down here. So it kind of flipperties around like this. Hey, Midnight. Hello, buddy. So, oh, don't step on the keyboard. No, 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 no. Come on. Please stay here. Oh, hold on. Okay, buddy. You can't, you can't do that. I'm sorry. If anything, hang on a second. My cat just stepped on the keyboard and everything went crazy. Uh, there we go. I'm sorry, dude. You can't do that. I thought I just, thought he disconnected everybody for a second there. Whew. Scared. Okay. Um, excited to hear the end of this section. Uh, yes, I am as well. And we may get to it tonight. We'll see. All right. So, as they're traveling down this much larger tunnel... Um, they are still seeing the signs of conflict and things of that nature. But what they're seeing less of is the bodies or destruction of people attempting to escape. If you'll remember, uh, a lot of areas in the roads they've traveled, there's wagons and stuff where people were trying to get out of Corman or try to get to the surface and they didn't make it. In this, um section of the tunnels, you'll still see some wagon and stuff kind of thing, but now it doesn't look like a wagon trying to grab your goods and your family and get out of here. It looks like wagons that were just traveling as normal that probably got caught in or by whatever has caused all this. Uh, and there are some sections where uh, you'll find groups of warriors and stuff. Uh, the, again, remains of warriors, and you can find them. I mean, you're going to find busted and old pieces of armor and weapons there. It's easy to say, okay, this is where some warriors died versus this is where some farmer dies next to a wagon, and there's a like a, some type of mule or underground lizard skeleton that pulled their wagon. Hey, sweetie. So, um, they, uh, they, the, what they're seeing is a little bit different. Um, and what they came up with 
and it was good because they they got it right. I didn't have to explain it to them. They got it right. Um, down when we got to this low, whatever the issue is that caused all this was very likely started below, which means it caught people at the lower area more off guard. They were they had less time to flee or protect themselves and things of that nature. So that's why you're seeing less people. The few people that were able to escape, bringing that knowledge to the upper city, the middle city and upper city, the higher you went, the more time people had to get out of there. Uh, so you're seeing much less of the escapee kind of damage uh, as you're there coming across. It would be just regular people getting caught in the middle of something bad. Um, and sometimes as they're looking... Uh, in these wagons, in this section, something different than what they'd found before. Uh, there were marks on some of the old wood of the wagons of um, blades. Thank you very much, Behir040, for the sub. We're going to have to give this a second. Four. That's usually how many there is. Not today. Sir Cheese a lot. Nice name. Is that good? We had five. Nope. Six today. Okay. Clearly, surely that's got to be it. Oh my goodness. Basically, everyone who subscribed earlier today is now popping up. Okay, we're finally caught up. <laughs> usually it's four or five, and the OBS finally catches up with all the earlier ones. Uh, Folks, uh, and sometimes uh, people have asked me about this. This is just a little bit on the channel info. Uh, people who follow the channel or sub to the channel and have those the setting to show that publicly, we get the announcements for. People who sign up and have that information, who they follow hidden, we get no notifications. The total amount of subscribers for the channel goes up, but I don't know who they are or when they, they joined up. So um, sometimes people have said, hey... It shows that we got 10 new subscribers. We only got five pop-ups. Five people signed up who don't have that public. So just wanted to cover that. So, um, again, in the finding in the wagons uh, in this section, uh, large blade marks. So, so, again, something like a blade had chopped into the wood. Um, and the also signs some of the, uh, the wagons, what wood is left. The wood's not just going to all rot away. Wood will sit there for a while. The pieces such that are left, there's even marks of fire or flame damage. And that's not something they found on the upper levels. Uh, so that is uh, a little bit different and something that they did make note of. They were very good at asking questions. My players learned a long time ago that there are clues there if they know, if they ask the right thing. So asking, is there any type of damage different than before? They said, I said, yes, yes, you notice this other than before. And they're like, okay, well, now this looks like weapon damage. Whereas earlier, you may remember, I mentioned that since there's no flesh on any of these bones, it's hard to see how they were killed. Although some of the bone fragments and bone pieces were uh, distanced from, from their body, like an arm was cut off or ripped off and it's nowhere near the rest of its body kind of thing. Uh, so there are some signs of that, but with no tissue, it's hard to tell how they died. Uh, down here, same kind of situation, other than you... On some of the armor pieces they find, uh, they are also finding some signs of uh, large bladed weapons as well, which um, in some of those marks are almost black and sooty, like there's some flame or heat damage done in the exact same area. So that's a thing. 
uh, that they did find out. I have it noted down here. I had different clues on a paper that if they ask questions, I will say, yes, you found this. But they may never get all of them. They may never get any of them. And they got most of them, so I was pretty happy. Okay. So, no, kitty. I know. You want to, but you can't. Um, the kitties have been wanting to be up here visit me all day. You're okay. Stay there. So, um, they takes them again, uh, almost day and a half, two days, to get down to uh, Lower Corman. Uh, by the time they get down there, of course, uh, as is the D&D way, they're all healed up, all their spells are back, and they are ready to take on this next section of adventure. They've also been given more information from their guide, Cole, about what they can expect to find down here. Um, and it reminds me, i got to get the, uh, the map out for you guys, because I do have that again for this level. Um, so... In this level, again, there are three clan areas or caverns off of the main cavern. The main cavern here is larger than either of the caverns uh, that you, they've already been in. Um, the three clans that are down here are the Shinar, the Ventoy, and the... Oh, I've forgotten the third one. Give me a second. Uh, Well, that was the second level. Ventoy. Oh, Batar. Batar is the uh, third. So those are the three dwarven clans that live down here. Now the Ventoy, which at one point uh, were known to be probably the, I you say, more powerful of all the clans. The most soldiers, most people, most wealth. Um, they are a darker-skinned. Uh, dwarf, much like Cole, because Cole is a member of Ventoy. Uh, here's another picture of Cole, their guide. So, um, the Shinar um, are the clan that are actually uh, the palest of skin, very much so um, almost to an albino-like, although their hair still will have the, the different colorings, but their skin is very, very pale. Um, and many say they were the first to go below. Whatever that means, that's what it's known as. They were the first to go below. And they're also the one clan that has the highest concentration of mages. So um, any clan can have a dwarven mage, but they're more commonly going to be a cleric, a warrior, a rogue, things of that, or just a regular you know, person, uh, especially craftsmen and things. Uh, but the Shinar definitely, um, they had clerics as well, but they had more mages than any other. They're very... Uh, and their ruling uh, cast or leaders were very often magic users as well. Again, I need to stress, not evil, because they're just that's just what they were. But there could be found um, mages of all alignments there, just like in a dwarven kingdom. There's good dwarves and evil dwarves, right? In any kingdom, you'll find good people and bad people, and people who are just, you know, NPC neutral. <laughs> but in this situation, uh, they're the only ones that had a large concentration of mages. Um, now, the Ventoy, their clan is a little bit different because almost 200 to 250 years before all this went down, the Ventoy sealed their gates to their cavern and never came out again. Um, there was a plague that infected the Ventoy, and they could not find out what that plague was. Um, their clerics and even their mages 
Uh, even the other clans had tried to help, but anyone who came e anywhere into the, into the Ventoy Caverns uh, immediately became infected and there were no survivors. Um, at one point, uh, the Ventoy realized that to save the rest of the Dwarven clans and Corman as a whole, the only thing they could do was contain the sickness inside. And so they locked themselves inside, never to come out again. The only Ventoy that exist in the world today are those who were outside of the uh, city, uh, or outside of the clan when, when that happened. Which, of course, there's small towns and villages, just like the other levels. Uh, you know, while well, you've got your main cavern, there's little towns and villages in this big cavern. Um, and they would be out, there's, some of them would be out traveling in merchants and things of that nature as well. Um, so there's, there would be a presence, but there were less of them because their entire clan area was off. The Shinar is also the clan that has the least... Um, the, the, these three clans have the least people because this is where everything went down. So uh, not a lot of them survived well, but the Ventoy were already a rare breed at the time that all of this went down. Um, Cole speaks very wistfully of that and how you know he, he was born after that happened and he's never got to see the birthplace of his father's father and you know one day he hopes to... Uh, have the opportunity to take that back, but sadly, that's not the mission they're here for today. They're here to take back the entire kingdom, which, even for him, is more important. Um, so, he does give them that information. The Batar uh, were the warriors of this level. Uh, again, you got your... Uh, the Ventoy were a good mix of everything, but a lot of politicians. Um, they were sometimes, even in early years, they would lead the city. Uh, so it kind of switched between those two primary clans. Uh, but they were very, very wealthy, and all that wealth is locked inside. But the dwarves, that's what hurts them the most, is they lost that many people. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's almost like its own kingdom's worth of people inside there. So I'm going to give you guys just a quick picture of what this cavern looks like. So um, let me grab it here. So when I show it to you, um, you're going to see there's a lot of little uh, outlets on here, little, little paths that stick out. Um, see if I can get this to adjust again. Hang on, it, I'm always backwards. There we go, we're getting there. It's getting there, it'll take it a second. Come on, work with me. Work with me, the lighting is different over here. There we go. So all those little things that poke off. One of them is the cavern they came down, but all the other ones are ways that lead down into different mines and sections. Uh, there are three caverns. You'll see one on the bottom left, one to the left, one in the upper right. The one on the left is the Shinar, and it's not directly off of the major cavern. You have to actually go down one of the tunnels to get to it. Uh, the Vatar is up in the upper right there, and down left is where the Ventoy sealed themselves off. There's another little cavern over there. Uh, you'll see all the way to the right uh, that says CWB. I mentioned earlier that there was an exhaust vent type section. That's what that was. Um, it, but it you can't get into normally. There's It's hidden and locked because it protects the air system that keeps a lot of the uh, lower and, and central city with breathable air. Um, which obviously is not clogged or closed up or anything because there is air down here. They can definitely, characters definitely felt the weight of it. I tried to stress that. Like For some people, claustrophobia kicking in, the weight of billions of pounds and tons of rock and dirt above them uh, and the fear that it could cave doors. It's like, ah, it's just how we live. But other races are like, if that caves in, we are squished. Uh, so it was a little nerve-wracking. And at times, 
affected the way they rolled uh, and, and things that they did in this, this adventure. So there were times that that could get to them. Uh, luckily, none of the characters had a fear of claustrophobia. As I've mentioned before, everybody has a phobia. We usually, by, by uh, third or fourth uh, level, we find a phobia or we di dictate what a phobia is for a character. And it, it's something normally normal, unless you're a Kender, and then it's very strange, because Kender are immune to fear, but they think they should be afraid of something, so they normally give themselves a phobia, uh, something to be scared of, even though they're not scared, and they try to imitate what they think fear is like. Uh, when they when, how people react like they scream and they run away and they jump up and down and they throw down their stuff and scream my baby even though they got no kids uh, just because they, they don't know what fear really fears like so they finally make their way down to this level I've given you a little information on how it's set up what it looks like and it takes them some time to get down here when they reach the bottom again there is a set of large gates that could be closed to block off this tunnel from the uh, bottom cavern. There was one at the top, uh, and there's one at the bottom. And this one is wide open. There's no signs at all that anybody or anything tried to close these gates. Um, there are some uh, bigger concentrations in that area of, um, I guess you could say, the leftovers of war, broken weapons and armor and things like that. Uh, it's like something tried to make a stand here, uh, whether they were trying to keep something from coming down or keep something from going up, it's hard to tell. Uh, but clearly some type of battle did appear in several areas close to this. Um, now these temples, again, these, these tunnels, dark. Normally, there'd be clerics and mages and just regular flames and braziers that are kept lit throughout these caverns uh, so that there is light sources. Um... This one, not so much. And Infravision is a little bit harder down here uh, because the mines beneath them, there is definitely a lot of heat coming up from that. So things are brighter to those with Infravision. Um, for Dark Vision, like Mercy, where it just looks like a regular day, she tells no difference. It's just as bright as normal for her. And for Ulrich, of course, he's just using a torch or occasionally the gem of brightness that he has um, as a, like a flashlight, uh, so he can see, to him, he doesn't really, he can feel warmth, both he and Mercy can, it's warmer down here, which is odd, because in the second level, it was definitely a lot colder than above ground, summertime up there, but here in this, in, in the bottom, it's warmer, and that's because, uh, Cole explains that there is, uh, several active lava tubes and tunnels that run through these mountains and volcanoes, and, um, the dwarves tap into that, uh, for heat and power and different things that they do. Uh, so that there are some of those tunnels that I showed you that branched off will lead to different types of mines, gold mines, diamond mines, uh, just regular stone and ore mines for building. Uh, the dwarves at one point used to trade with outside kingdoms, uh, providing high quality ore as well as metals and things that um, the other elves or humans may want to craft with. Um, elves not digging their own mines. Sometimes they do, but not as much. Uh, the dwarves were a good source of that, and uh, a lot of times that's what the dwarves would trade for luxuries the other kingdoms have, as well as their uh, foods and stuff. Not normally their liquor, because uh, no, no self-respecting dwarf is going to drink elven liquor and get drunk off that. He'd never live it down. He or she. Elven liquor is basically water to a dwarf, and a minotaur. Um, Dwarven Minotaur being known as the most probably potent uh, alcohol source there is. 
um, and highly, highly sought after my minotaurs, who have the second most potent alcohol. Um, so again, you could see that should things go successfully here, this would be an amazing opportunity for Darsh to be the first minotaur from the Kronair to somehow get trade rights with dwarven alcohol to supply to both the Minotaur and the human lands. You could imagine, and not only that, but other dwarven goods as well. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity for Darsh, should they survive this and help the dwarves in a positive manner, uh, that could really, really bring him and his family a large amount of wealth. Um, so while Dwar he's there to save Michael, no, he's not stupid either. In the back of his head, he's like, hmm, I'm thinking about that. So, because young lady who played Darsh asked me about these things. And I said, yes, plenty of opportunity. So as they reach the bottom, they have to make a decision. Where are they going to go? Um, as much as Cole wistfully looks southern and would love to go and see the gates of the Ventoy City, he feels that it's closed and it's quite commonly believed that whatever happened did not come from there. Um, if worse comes down to it, they can always go there last. But the gates that seal off the Ventoy area are overwhelmingly huge uh, and impossible to open from the outside. Um, so, and, so they decide instead um, to go to the central area. On the map, there wasn't anything, but in the central area was a large central city where multiple of the clans had businesses and warehouses. There's also a lot of forges. There's a lot of things down here where um, craftsmen would work. You're going to find your, um, you know, all the ores and the gems and everything that's being brought up from underneath to this level first to get sorted, cut things. And while there's craftsmen and such on other levels, a lot of that stuff gets processed here first. Uh, so, especially if it's going to be leaving the kingdom, then it's just transported all the way up to the ships or warehouses. Well, there's no ships at the time, but warehouses uh, where over land the dwarves would then take it or trade it outside to other races and people and kingdoms and such. So they decide to go to the center first. Last time they kind of went around the outer edge, but the first big problem they ran into, if you remember, was that big armored skeletal thing near the middle. And they're like, well, we're going to start middle this time. Instead of breaking the rules and going to the right and following the rules or going to the left, we're going to shoot straight down the middle, which is acceptable. You don't always have to go left if there's a middle, but if it's left or right, you should always go left. And that's my decision. That's what I recommend in life overall, in every decision you ever have to make. Always go left. Um, you want hamburgers or, or pizza for dinner? Go left. I'm telling you, it'll always work for you. So... They, uh, they decide to go straight to the middle. As they travel across the land, they come across more and more damage, you could see. Uh, and again, unlike the other levels where it's concentrated, here's a huge group of clearly armor and such where a battle was fought or so on and so forth. This is spread out like people were just caught about their daily lives. And when they reach that central hub, which is just known as Center City. It didn't have any fan. It had a name in Dwarven, but I don't have it written down. I apologize. Uh, but it was just a center thing where, where any race uh, was, was welcome, of course. And there was people living there, homes and towns and inns and businesses, all that kind of stuff. As they got there, um, the destruction becomes more apparent. Now they're seeing signs, damage of 
wood being actual burned. Again, not that much wood down here, but what little, there's burn damage. Uh, doors appear to be ripped off hinges. Uh, even some situations, walls smashed in on stone areas. <laughs> Was it a Scottish name? No, I don't normally give dwarven things Scottish names, even though all dwarves have a Scottish accent, because um, that's important. Because that's the way life works. Um, no, I didn't have a Scottish name. I usually try to make up most my own names. Um, but they go there and they're searching through. And they're finding, like I said, all the damage and destruction uh, that I let. And there's a mayor home in the center. Each of the levels would have some type of a mayor that handled the middle of the cavern type areas. The clans ruled within their own caverns, but the uh, there would be some type of mayor or leader or you know city thane, somebody that would rule but would still fall under the High Thane's rule as well. Kind of looking over that level for them. And so as they're looking through all of that, uh, and they're looking through those homes, they run into their first problem of the day. I apologize, I don't have a picture in this situation, because I couldn't find which book it was in. <laughs> but, they do run into their first issue. As they are traveling through the city... And they're searching, they come across some of the warehouse areas, and they're looking through those, and they're starting to find uh, rope everywhere. Thick rope hanging off buildings and sticking off things, or just in weird shapes. And after a period of searching and looking at these things more carefully, they find that these very thick ropes appear to be almost like webs, if you will. Um, which immediately causes concern for one member of the party. Can you remember who had a phobia of spiders? I will give you a moment to catch up for the delay, but someone had an issue with spiders underground before and had a natural phobia of the things. So, it is Panda New. Darsh has a spider phobia. Um, has since the day he was created. Uh, that was the phobia. I, have a, I had a big chart you could roll off of or you could choose specifically if it worked into your uh, backstory. Um, and so, uh, in this one, was her first character. She decided to let him roll. And he got spiders. Whereas Artemis got heights. Uh, Mercy, I can't remember what hers is off the top of my head. Uh, but Dandy's is the um, fear of people with no faces. If I remember correctly. Like a person whose just face is blank. Like a regular fleshy face, but no holes. For some reason she thought that was something that she should be scared of. And... She's never found one, but if she does, she's ready. She's practiced so she can be scared whenever she comes across one of those. So look up Mercy's. Mercy's... I can't remember Mercy's, dang it. Off the top of my head. Uh, always this way. <laughs> so these are, again, when I say webs, I'm talking thick. For those of you who aren't uh, watching or listening to the audio version of this, uh, we're talking probably six to seven inches thick. Uh, that's going to be almost 20 centimeters, I'd say. It, 
conversion. It's been a while, but I think it's right. What exactly is a kender? Wow, it's a good time to catch up on that turtle. Yes. So kender is, a, is originally a race from Dragonlance, and one of the few official D&D race type things that I brought over to Merge World because I just love them that much. A kender looks like a very, very short elf, ranging from three to, at the most, four feet tall. Um, they have a regular lifespan of a human, so they don't live long like an elf does. They have the pointed ears, sometimes a little bit more pointed. Um, but they're very thin and very agile. Um, and their biggest, I guess you could say, the biggest thing that lets them stand out is that they have no fear. They are immune to fear, even magical fear, uh, within reason. Uh, but they are, uh, they are immune to fear. So that means that they have a natural curiosity and they have a habit of putting themselves in situations where a uh, common person would not go into for fear of their lives. As such, Kender don't have a very long lifespan. Uh, naturally, yes, if they live that long. But at a certain age, Kender get uh, taken over by wanderlust, the urge to see the world, to make maps, to see what's out there, to find adventure. And this wanderlust will take them on the road where they go out. Um, and at some point in their life, they may return home and uh, get married, have a kid. And then when the kid's old enough, they go wandering again. And then as they get back to, an, uh, if they survive to a later age, then they'll usually settle down somewhere wherever they're accepted. Most races don't like Kender because they never stop talking. Uh, they can be very annoying, but more importantly, they are 100% expert thieves and they don't realize they're doing it. It's a subconscious thing. Um, they will literally you just walk through a room and they'll be like, oh, check out my new dagger. And you're like, I have a dagger like that. They're like, oh, you want one? And then you realize it's your dagger. Um, they'll find stuff. They have pouches all over their belts and all, usually over straps and such with all little things. And they're the type of person who's like, here's, an incredible, here's a ruby worth 10,000 gold pieces. <gasps> a feather that's blue. You know, it's like for them, it's that, that greed and stuff doesn't hop in. Or have there been evil kender? There have. <laughs> there have. But um, overall, they have a very childlike innocence about them. Um, they're uh, very good with a staff sling that they use called a hoopack. It's a short staff sling that forks at the end that has like a, a slingshot on it. And the bottom end of it has a metal spike. If you take off the top part and the bottom part, they got a blow dart gun. Um, they also have special abilities. Uh, one of them would be taunt, which is they have the ability to enrage things. If the thing can understand the language the kender is speaking, uh, a kender with enough time can cause it to go anything, to go into a berserker rage of hatred just wanting to kill it, giving it negatives and so on. Um, but Kender are a lot of fun. There's some uh, if, you, if you ever want to read some Dragonlance novels with Kender, let me know. I'll point you towards a couple specific ones that you will enjoy. But as dandy as a Kender, that's what uh, kind of important here. So I'm glad we had a chance to retouch on that for new folks who are listening. Um, so we have dandy. But now we see these big, thick, web-like things. And they look old, but they're very sturdy. And the party begins to move more quietly. Um, it's a running joke with my group that they're like, okay, we're going to go this way. I'm like, are you? You're going to run? They're like, no. We go quietly and cautiously. And if they don't tell me they're going quietly and cautiously, I can only assume that they're rushing in head first. And they learned very quickly to clarify that they're going quietly and cautiously in every situation. <laughs> Uh, but once in a while, I like, to, I like to snag them unprepared. They're still continuing to use the torch that Ulrich 
is wielding. Because again, um, they don't try to light any of these rope web things on fire. But looking at them, Tobias is like, mm, I think there's a chance that they could burn. That could be useful. Um, plus, you not being able to see anything down here would not be useful. So they, they keep the torch. And Tobias is keeping his uh, the light on the end of his staff off currently unless it is needed. If something were to happen and the torch were to go out with but a single word, he can light up his staff. Um, which is a custom staff that he made. So it's not based on any other staffs. It has a few basic abilities, uh, but nothing super, super powerful. He can cast light on it from it um, almost unlimited, uh, and he can cast feather fall from it three times a day. Those are the, those are the two main things that he uses it for. Um, but he is gaining in abilities, so who knows what he'll build next. They search the center. As they're trying to move through this area, they are, of course, going to have problems. Because about that time, and see, when I say that, they immediately start grabbing for their dice. <laughs> about that time, with a loud squeal, something falls from above them. I always forget about Tobias, even in Adventure where he's repeatedly mentioned. It happens a lot. Uh, it happens a lot. And the, I'll tell you what, sometimes when we used to play, they would forget that Tobias was there until I, I would use him to cast a spell or something. And they're like, what are we going to do? Tobias like, I'll, I'll cast this spell and we can just fly down. And they're like, oh, we forgot you were here. <laughs> they, they, there was, it became a running gag that they would, some, they would have a habit of forgetting Tobias because he just became sometimes the niche mage who hung out there. But by this point, they picked... It was a little bit more, but in the early days when they were on adventures especially, um, and he was there mostly to identify magic items they found so they could use them and cast the occasional magic missile or fireball. Uh, he, he was there just as a support class, mostly. But he definitely gained a bit more. After he and uh, Lamia went off to their thing and they came back and he was a bit older. She was way younger and they had a thing going on. Uh, he, he got a lot more depth as a character. And I'm excited to see where he goes. Hmm. So he has his staff at the ready should it be needed. But as I mentioned, as they're going through the city being careful, something comes from above. The creature in question had jumped off of or fell, fell off of the roof of one of the large warehouses above them. And even though it was tr it was being relatively quiet, Dandy, with her ability to detect noise, heard it moving right before it jumped and was able to call out that it did not get a surprise attack, but it did win initiative. So they were able to m move and jump out of the way in as much that it didn't get a, a free attack on them. Uh, but in the next round where things happened, it did get to go first because it had that bit of a head start. Um, the other issue with this is they literally had to jump apart. Uh, they were walking down a road, which was about 8 to 10 feet wide between these warehouses, wide enough for a, a wagon or two to come through there. Um, again, because that doesn't seem like a lot, but remember, wagons are smaller because they're dwarven-sized wagons, right? They're not full-sized like you'd expect a human to. Um, so... They, uh, they all kind of jump to the side, uh, grabbing for their weapons and such to ready to fight off whatever this is. Um, and Ulrich's torch hits the ground. Because uh, in all of that, as he's jumping out of the way, he loses the torch. Tobias notices this and 
his first action in that round is to light up his his uh, staff. Because it takes a command word to do so. He has to vocally say that. Which means he can't do that and vocally cast a spell. Most people manage to just get out of the way, but a couple people literally fell trying to do so. Ulrich and Cole were the two that fell, which is why he lost his torch. So their first action was to literally stand up. Around taking an average of six to eight seconds, it takes a couple seconds to get up. You're not going to get to do a bunch of other fancy stuff. The creature that lands before them is about ten feet high, tall, I guess you'd say. From legs to head. I say legs with lots of S's because the creature has eight of them because I'm a jerk. And this definitely gives Darsh some issues. But it is not a spider, as you may have thought. No, no. Draven doesn't be... doesn't At this point, at this level, silly spiders. That's for noobs. We, uh, we don't have any of those to deal with. We have something else. What we are looking at today... Oh, I guess I should get the right page here. Um... Make sure I'm reading the right stuff here. Yes, okay. So as they as everybody jumps out of the way, this creature, its top half where you'd expect there to be like a spider head, there's a humanoid type shape coming out of it. So imagine a centaur, you know, like the half man, half horse thing. Um, except the man part of it is on the front of a spider body bulbous big spider body and the whole spider is hairy and the creature that's on top of it looks like a mixture between a man and but with longer arms and a head a mixture between a rat and a wolf head if you can picture that okay the mixture between a rat and a wolf head so you know i just like to bring interesting things into the group to have some fun here um so they get to play with some of those. These are a version of something called spider fiends. Spider with a Y in the middle. And they are a de demon type spider from the lower planes. Um, and they're pretty nasty. Uh, they get many attacks with those legs and its front arms. It does not wield weapons, but the end of it, as mentioned, it has long arms. At the end of it, it has like a pincer, and the top one comes down much longer and curved, and it is razor, razor sharp. Oh, you're fine, Mr. Elemental Dad. Uh, pleasure to have you. Perfect timing. They're about to fight a giant uh, rat-wolf-spider-man combo. Not Spider-Man like superheroes. A spider-slash-man. So, this thing hits the ground. Uh, and the noise that it makes is more like an angry giant rat than it does a spider. It's a loud, screech-type kind of thing. Almost the kind of noise that if there were more around, you would expect them to hear it. I'm just saying. And immediately, they are in combat. It gets to go first. Because uh, it is quick. And immediately... The two people closest to it, because again, when you yell, everybody down, nobody knows which way everybody else is going to go. Everybody jumps, or slides, or throws themselves, or steps out of the way. Nobody gets to really coordinate that. So, 
unlike their normal order, where there's warriors in the front, squishies in the back, everybody kind of went their own way. And so next to each other was Darsh and Tobias. Uh, and that is where the creature went first. Now, is it targeting them because Darsh is the largest and viewed as the biggest threat? Or because Tobias is a magic user and considered a big threat? They don't know, but they know it's coming at them first. And very quickly attack at them. Darsh managing to do his best to block Tobias somewhat, uh, takes the brunt of the damage. Um, and it's considerable. The spike literally goes through his shoulder, right through the meat underneath where the bone would be, almost where your armpit is, and just goes through that meat and sticks out the back, and then rips out again, doing almost more damage on the way back out, but immediately his left arm becomes useless, and his shield hits the ground. And now he just has his primary hand and one arm that right now is just completely done. Look up the picture of the spider fiend. Excellent! And of course, there are different types. They don't all look the same. They're all bred from the same type. They're all the same type of creature, um, but they don't always come in the same configuration. There are different breeds of those as well. Uh, so I liked to pick them. Uh, but yes, spider fiend, very fun. So Darsh immediately now has lost his shield and the use of his left arm until he can get some fat healing. Fat healing is not uh, throwing spells from across the room. Artemis is going to have to put some real healing on that to get that uh, back up and very likely may need to do so relatively soon before there's permanent nerve damage because magic still has its limitations in uh, merged worlds anyways. So... Tobias uh, only got clipped a little bit, not enough to really do a lot of damage, but enough to definitely make him aware that he's a target, um, as Darsh takes also the brunt of it. Um, Ulrich and Cole spend the turn getting up. Artemis immediately casts her Blast spell to boost everybody up a little bit. Hey, midnight. And Mercy just, and Dandy, attacked. Uh, Mercy and Dandy were beside each other. Ulrich, Artemis, and Cole were next to each other, and Artemis was the only one on her feet. But Mercy and Dandy were both standing out <clears throat> and managed to go in the same direction, and they got to attack, uh, and they actually were on the, the positive side because they were behind the creature and were getting to attack it from behind, which for Dandy normally would be good, um, but she's just stabbing it in the butt of the abdomen, which is a very large spider abdomen. She doesn't know where the direct points are in a weapon like this, so she doesn't get to do quite as much backstab damage. If she could get up to the back of the thing, using what would normally be a person's anatomy, she has a better chance of doing extreme damage. Uh, but just stabbing it in the back will hurt it and <laughs> probably piss it off. But she doesn't get to do the massive amount of damage she normally does by doing an assassination backstab to a specific artery or location. Um, and Mercy, she's got her Morning Star, and she just drops it and grabs her sword and goes at it. Because in this situation, she believes her blade is probably going to be better. Darcy's just being skewered. He really got poked a lot. Um, I, as the DM, rolled really well in this dungeon. Um, more so than in almost any other thing I'd done. I, I did a lot of damage to these guys. Um, I haven't covered... Some of it kind of slipped through there just in the thing, but Cole got beat up a lot. There were several times that their guide got knocked out, and they just had to hang out until they could heal him, and, and he could wake up to tell him where to go next, because they're just lost in the middle of a giant, dark cavern um, that he's only been... He's never actually been to. He just has the area memorized from the maps. 
So uh, Cole and Darsh got really hooked up in this fight. Uh, and then Dandy got hooked up real bad on the level above where the Mage Doom thumped her. Uh, that's probably one of the most damages Dandy's ever taken. Um, other than the fight with Daedalus when she almost died before she merged with Menandra. Um, she got she got crushed. Bones broken that. Artemis used almost all of her healing to keep her alive. And then they just got down the tunnel and had to rest. And they, spent, had, they had to spend a whole day of resting and, and relearning spells and healing before they could carry on. No babies. So, um, it was it was definitely... Darsh got hooked up a lot. Uh, several people got hurt a lot. But Cole and Darsh definitely got the worst side of it. Up until this point... Who knows what the future gives us? Don't want to let you think something else might not happen. So, they end up fighting this thing. And the fight itself didn't last a whole long time. Um, Darsh, using his sword, uh, is able to do quite a bit of damage, even with just the one arm. He only has half the amount of attacks he can normally do, and he doesn't have quite the defense since he's not using his dragon scale shield at this point. Um, but he's still a really strong guy, and even with the pain, he's able... And he's got negatives because it's he's fighting something that can be viewed as a spider, so he gets negatives in this situation. Um, so while it's harder to hit the thing, uh, he actually does a little bit of extra damage because he's freaking out a little bit. Um, if he does score a hit, he gets to do a little bit of love there, and he did. Um, and he got some aim, but Mercy really saved the day in this situation. Uh, because, as I mentioned, she and Dandy got to attack from behind. And she had used a sword, and on that very, very first roll, she has three attacks with those with her sword. Three, atta- three attacks every two rounds. Which means she, she can say, I'm going to do all three attacks now, and nothing next round. I'm going to do two attacks for now, one next round, one now, two now. You get to divide that how you like, at least in second edition. She said she was going to do two attacks first. And she rolled a natural 20. And she also rolled another hit, but the 20 was the big one. Um, and with that roll, she rolled triple damage. Um, uh, which is one of the better things you can roll, other than just death. Um... And she did a lot of damage to it from behind as well, um, which took its attention off of Darsh and Tobias immediately and focused it on Mercy uh, because it took a big hit, bigger than, honestly, what Darsh took. So it spins around on Dandy and Mercy. As it's spinning it around, Dandy pulls her Dandy move and runs underneath of it because the thing's high. Dandy can walk underneath it without hitting it. She's underneath of it just stabbing upwards with her daggers. She's just, it's the way she explained it to me, she goes, I'm just going to run through going, guys, in front of me, stabbing it as I run through. Um, and she has some pretty magical daggers at this point. So she's, again, poking and stabbing her several attacks, running through. So when this thing turns around facing Mercy, now Dandy's behind it again. And she's done a bunch of damage under its gut. Uh, but De- Mercy is alone against this thing right now, at least face-to-face, but uh, she had done some really good damage with those attacks. And now because the thing spun around, it's still aware of Darsh. It didn't turn around completely and let Darsh now attack it from behind. It wasn't stupid. But it did skitter backwards uh, where it's back. It kind of turned towards Mercy and then moved to the side. So its back was against a wall at this point. So they couldn't get quite behind it, with the exception, again, of Dandy, who didn't shoot for directly behind it. Her job was to get to Darsh, and that's what she wanted to do. Um, so she rushed to Darsh. She gets there, and she gets to him, and 
the next round begins. In this round, the Spider Fiend won again. Spider Fiend rolled really well for its, uh, and it got to attack Mercy, and it used four attacks. Two of its front spider legs and two of its here. If he had snagged all four successful hits, there's a chance that he had to grab the thing, in this case Mercy, and bring it up and give an extra bite attack. It literally can grab it with all four of these front arms and front legs and then gets a free bite attack. Uh, it did only hit with two of them, so it did not get that attack in this situation, but it did still hit two times. Uh, once with a left arm and once with a right foot. Uh, oddly enough, or was right and left. I know it was one, one upper and one lower. Um, and the lower do more damage because they're stronger, they're a larger foot, but they're not as sharp as the talons. So it's more of a getting kicked by a horse feeling than it is being sliced or skewered. Um, so Mercy being in armor, uh, the two hits didn't really hurt flesh, but that lower one was a big kick, and it knocked her back and knocked the wind out of her. Uh, in that round, it was she had to forfeit her next attack uh, because she literally had to catch her breath. It hit her that hard. At this point, Artemis has unleashed her lions. You'll remember that she has two figurines of wondrous power, lions that she named Pen and Teller. It was... At the time, we were watching a bunch of Penn and Teller specials, and it was on her mind. But she drops these two uh, magical lions, uh, which, to be honest with you, pop out a lot more often than I describe them. Um, but a lot of times she pops them out, and then they don't do anything except defend her. But in this situation, she pops down these two lions, and they immediately are jumping on this thing and attacking, uh, which they get a claw-claw bite attack every round. They don't do a ton of damage, but they do get to hurt things that are at least damaged by plus one or better weapons. So their claw claw bite, because they're a magical creature, does count as a plus one. If it's a creature that needs a plus two or higher, their claw claw bite wouldn't do any real damage to it. Um, this creature, plus one didn't do a whole lot to it. So it wasn't that effective, but it did put a little bit of a barricade between Artemis, uh, Ulrich, Cole... Uh, from the Spider Fiend. At this point, Ulrich is back up again. Tobias's thing is lighting it from the other side so he can see the silhouette, and Ulrich and Cole just rush right in to attack uh, because they're trying to keep Artemis behind them but still trying to help. And they run in, and they're doing some attacks as well. Um, they each did a little bit of damage, but nothing phenomenal. Uh, Tobias did way more damage than he normally does, because he's got that new Frostband Scimitar he got last time. Remember that? The Frostband made him like immune to fire and stuff, and it was like cold damage and things and so on. Um, he got that Frostbrand Scimitar with his... And he had a plus one Scimitar already. Well, that Frostbrand is a good Scimitar. Counts as a plus three weapon. Uh, so it cut pretty deep. Um, Cole didn't really do anything. <laughs> he attacked with his regular... His swords at this point, which didn't have an effect. <clears throat> Um, neither did Ulrich's other plus one scimitar didn't do anything, but his frost brand was a, was a good chunk of damage. So this battle again went very quickly. There was only a couple of rounds of combat, um, but the characters managed to do a lot of damage in a short period of time, especially with Mercy's first attack of getting that triple damage. Uh, so it only took a couple rounds. Darsh uh, managed to cut a leg off with his first attack with his arm on the set of his two attacks. 
He had the same attacks, three every two. At this point, he can only take one around because of his arm damage, but he lobs a, le a leg off. He's just that strong with his sharp sword. He lobs a leg off, um, and it only took, I think, three or four rounds tops before they had the thing down. Um, it should have normally been a bit more of a difficult fight, but they got some really good rolls early on, and I don't take those away from people. I'm not going to make it harder to kill just because they did well. People can do good things, and people can do bad things. Um, but <laughs> what ended the fight is because Dandy got to Darsh, and the thing was facing Mercy, and Dandy had Darsh, did the Dandy-Darsh combo, where Darsh grabs her and throws her on top of the thing. And now she's on the back, and she start, now she comes in, and she's actually stabbing at the back of the creature. Now she's doing more damage as it's bucking, and then everybody attacking it from the bottom. It was a very big, quick combo, um, because Darsh throwing Dandy is a common thing. Especially if it's a big creature and they can get her up there on the back. That happens a lot. So Dandy gets up there and she's... Uh, with her daggers again. And very often as the thing bucks, Dandy's type person will stab her daggers in and hold on to those like they're a lead to hold on. And then she'll pull one out and stab again. And then as it's rocking, she'll pull another one. Uh, she has to make rolls to to stay on there, but in that regard, her skill was so high, it was it was hard for Dandy to get bucked off. She'd been a hell of a bull rider had she been walking around our world. Ray, Rob, what's going on? Uh, somebody says, I have to leave. Oh, well, I appreciate that you came by. <laughs> Thanks for stopping in. <laughs> I'm going to get my beverage out here real quick. So... After four or five rounds, Dandy stabbing up top Ulrich chopping with his new magic sword, Mercy chopping with her sword, and Darsh lobbing a leg off every round. Um, it did not take long for them to take this creature out. Uh, it was actually much quicker of a fight than I had anticipated, but not in a bad way, because they did some really cool stuff, and I got to really hurt Darsh. Which is always a fun moment for me. I never aim to kill people, but I aim to maim sometimes. Um, it's, I will, I will always want to make a challenge. A fight should be challenging enough that there's a chance you could die, but I'm not designing it to make you die. And if I roll correctly, bad things can happen. If you roll poorly, it can happen. So if I've done enough damage to someone where they've, they've got to stop a minute and they got to like, whoa, we almost lost some stuff there. Uh, it's a nice, uh, awakening back up of, hey, you guys aren't immortal yet. You almost lost somebody there. And especially when it's the Darsh who has the most amount of hit points in the group, that's uh, that's a big loss. So uh, that was a, a rude awakening there that they were going to have to be a bit more careful with what they were doing. Um, but they did successfully kill the spider fiend. And no other spider fiends came at that time. Uh, are there more out there? They don't know. But now they've got to be more careful because that was a large thing. And had that caught them more unaware, several of them could have been dead before they ever drew their weapon. Luckily, Dandy heard them. Um, and so, now they're moving more quietly, and they do decide to take the torch out of the play at this point. They are now going to be going with, as before, Ulrich is walking arm-in-arm arm with Artemis. Tobias casts Infravision on himself, and they are now moving through. Takes a couple rounds for... Um, Tobias to adjust, because now it's in provision where there's a lot of heat coming down, and that's something he never expected, uh, so he, they had to go a little bit slower while he adjusted to that as well. Uh, but they begin 
they continue searching and they find more webs and stuff in the area, but they don't find any more spider fiends. Uh, but they're now moving with the concept that there are maybe more out there, so they are definitely being more aware of what's above them and not putting themselves into situations that could be as easily surprised. So, once they successfully do that, they, decide, they search that, they don't find anything else of major importance in the central part of the lower city, in the main hub, um, other than the damage and the things that I discussed earlier. Um, this spider fiend appears to be the only one. They didn't search every building. This is a big city. They checked through it as best they could, but no other clues other than that spider fiend. There could be more in this city, and they just didn't come across them. But they decide that um, they wanted to go to the Shinar compound, uh, which was the mage one. Um, from the beginning, that's where they assumed the problem was going to be. Um, because when they asked about wh how, what's the difference between the clans, and I explained, these are warriors, these, these ones are mages, their ears perked up, and they're like, oh, mages? And I distressed to them, it's not a city of evil mages, it's not that, then Shinar aren't evil, they're just like every other dwarf nation. It's good Shinar there, and there may be a couple bad ones, but they're not like a, the one clan that's evil. That's not how they roll. Um, all these clans are playable characters in Merge World. Um, and each clan has different perks and special racial abilities based on the clan that you choose. Just throwing that out there. Um, so, uh, they decide they wanted to go to the Shinar compound. Um, they were given some information about the basic layer uh, layout of the Shinar, um, although the Shinar didn't give a whole lot of information. Um, because, again, it was one of those situations where not a lot of them made it out, and most of the ones that are there now... Um, were away at the time or didn't live all that low. So there's not a lot of them that are super familiar with the compound. It wasn't that they didn't give me information because they didn't want to. It'd be the same problem with the Ventoy. Um, there just weren't a lot of Ventoy left who've actually been down there at that point. Um, so they decide they want to check the Shinar. Now Cole knows approximately where the tunnel is that leads to that compound because as I mentioned, all the other caverns that the clans lived in Usually they'd be one set. You come to one section of the cavern, and there'd be big gates there, and you walk through that, and you're in another smaller cavern. The Shinar were different. There was a tunnel that led to theirs. Their cavern was actually a little bit higher than everybody else's. You want a tunnel, and you go in, and you kind of loop up and around to get to the Shinar compound, which is a, a cave that's up in there. And the Shinar compound is higher than it is wider. Um, I say that because, again, being a large mage-type area, they fall into the regular mage trope of having large towers in their city um, and living in things of that nature, uh, having their own type of brotherhood of magic and such. And other clans would sometimes come in and, uh, who were mages and apprentice here, and Shinar may go Because, again, I stress, there were mages in any group. Shinar just had a whole lot more of them. So they begin making their way into the Shinar, and they get to the they get to the entrance of the tunnel that would lead them to the Shinar area. Um, and here they find a large amount of battle leftovers. I'm trying to think of a better way to say that, but um, <clears throat> they're finding a lot of armor, weapons, broken things that appeared to be very hastily built barricades that are mostly smashed. Cole and Darsh looking at those, and Mercy, 
uh, they're all military enough to say, okay, if we pick this up and put these together like a puzzle piece, this would have been this type of a barricade and spikes and so on. <clears throat> and so they're seeing this, but it's impossible to know whether or not the goal was to keep something in or keep something out. But they're also finding um, remnants of magic. There are singe marks in the wall. Think, again, Tobias is like, okay, there was some spells were cast here. I could tell on the wall the singe marks that a fireball was cast over there. A uh, lightning bolt was cast over there. You can tell by the burn pattern in the rock. Uh, there's been nothing here to disturb it. There's no real breezes around here. If anything, dust settles. So a lot of these things, like a fossil, uh, look almost like they did the day they happened, other than the minor like metal rusting a little bit, which, again, doesn't happen a whole lot. There's not a lot of moisture down here. Um, but there are signs of magic spells. And again... Tobias is like, it's hard to tell if it was magic being cast at the tunnel or from the tunnel. He says it's in all over the place. There was quite a bit of magic that went off here. Definitely some powerful mages, and quite a few of them, uh, were involved in a battle here. And checking the armor and such of some of the warriors that are in that area, some of them appear to be struck by magic as well. Tobias says, I can't for sure say yes, they were killed by the mages that were here, um, but they might have been, or they might have been killed by something else fighting the mages that also could cast spells uh, like other mages. Like It's hard to tell because, again, the time that has gone by. They continue on through this area. Uh, Tobias, <laughs> looking through some of the remnants, comes across two or three spell books, he believes, uh, and a couple scroll cases. Uh, he has them put inside of the chest of holding as much as he would love to get a hold of some dwarven spellbooks. Falls under that, hey, we're going to give them everything we find of theirs, and he's going to make sure those get returned to the Shinar. Because he, of course, is going to use this as an opportunity to earn positive with the Shinar, because if the Shinar are the mages of the group, it would be great to be able to bring them into the Brotherhood of Magic that's in Paxwall and those. Uh, he is definitely always um, a servant of that group, and the opportunity to uh, bring more into the Brotherhood would only benefit everybody from their point of view. Have I ever used any apps for the to use for D&D? I have not. Um, when a lot of this stuff went on, I didn't have a smartphone yet. Um, a lot of this stuff, I was still... With, by the time this part of the story was happening, I probably had a Windows phone... I don't think I'd gotten my first smartphone yet. My real smartphone. Uh, so no, I, I, I've never used any apps. By the time all the apps came out, I hadn't played in a while. Good question, though. Appreciate that. Um, okay. So as they make their way up, signs of this type of thing, of the damage and such they seem continues. Again, it's hard to tell which direction, though. Um, but they are coming across less spell damage and more uh, physical bottle remnants. As well as, uh, in the armor, some more of those big cuts that I was talking about earlier. So, they're heading into the Shinar. Uh, let me find the Shinar section. Um, right. Oh, I should mention that the Spider Fiend did not have any treasure. Um, and killing it, it went bleh, it just died. Uh, and Tobias was able to get some pieces of it. 
Um, unlike the other demon-type thing they fought before, which dispelled back to its plane of origin, these just died. Um, let's see. On the way up this tunnel... Oh, hey, Paul. Thank you. I appreciate that, sir. Um, on the way up this tunnel, which in itself would take probably five or six hours to get to the Shinar compound. Again, these are distances. They ended up fighting two more spider fiends along the way. And I know it kind of seems like I'm jumping over those, uh, but they were very much kind of... Like, this one's actually uh, were harder fights because they didn't roll quite as well, but they were more of a standard fight because they're coming up the tunnel and the things in front of them, and the warriors in the front, squishies in the back. Um, it would be much like you'd expect. There were no things that I can remember that were important moments. Uh, the first fight was really cool because Dandy running underneath it and just stabbing it and having Darsh throw it on the back and then Mercy's big triple damage on her first hit. Um, there was a lot of really cool things that happened in a, a small fight time period there and that's why I probably remember them so well. Uh, Darsh is healed back up now. That did use uh, almost a third, if, a little over a third if I remember correctly, of Artemis's healing spells and several of her big ones. Uh, so there were some concerns that at some point... Uh, another big hit like that, and they would be out of healing spells for the day. They did have some healing potions and stuff with them. Um, both Darsh, Mercy, and Ulrich all have a couple on them. And during battle, instead of attacking, they can attempt to take a uh, shot of healing potion uh, if needed. Artemis doesn't normally carry them because she's got the spells. But everybody else usually has one on them if possible, especially Darsh and Mercy. Uh, Darsh usually carries two, because he's a big dude and has a lot of hit points. Um, so, let's see here. Let me get to the next part. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, after they had killed two more of those, uh, again, battles healed up. Now they now they're definitely have less than half of their spells left for the day. Tobias even had to use a couple of spells. And at this point, they're like, well, not having any lights not off, or having all the lights off isn't helping us, uh, so they, Tobias has got his uh, staff lit up at all times. And it is such a magic item that should he be knocked unconscious or killed, the staff will stay lit up even if it's not in his hand, until either he dispels it, or someone with the ability to dispels it, or 60 minutes passes. Uh, every 60 minutes he, has, he can recast it again and keep it going, uh, but he has to do that. If he doesn't, it'll automatically light out. I just mentioned that uh, for future reference. Um, they finally make it to the Shinar compound, and immediately Tobias can tell them this is where they needed to be. He's like, he can feel magic. Like, not like someone's casting a spell on him. He goes, there's something here that is emitting pretty powerful magic aura at this point. Artemis can feel a touch of it as well. Everybody else it just feels weird in there, but they don't understand. Artemis and uh, Tobias are like, no, that's magic. Is it a creature? Is it a spell? Is it a magic item or artifact? Can't tell you, but something has given off a pretty powerful magical aura, and it is coming from one of the towers. Not the largest one, but one of the towers slightly to the back and to the right, if you will, when you're walking in. North-South doesn't matter. They, they've lost track of North and South down here. Only uh, Cole knows that at this point. And Dandy, because Dandy has direction sense. So she always knows which direction is which direction. But other than them, everybody else has lost track of that a long time ago. So 
They're like, okay, well, that's where we have to go then. And they start making their way through the Shinar area. And again, they're coming now across buildings that have had more damage done to them than anywhere else they've seen. Walls busted completely in. Um, now they're seeing the huge blade marks across the wall, which they can see that the blade caused the burn marks. It was a very hot piece of metal that caused the singes and burn marks in the stone, mind you. Not just wood, but stone where it struck wood or cloth because they have banners hanging down and things. There are signs where fire uh, had burned up certain items and things in that area, mostly flags and tapestries and things of that nature. Um, but yes, there was definitely some damage done. Um, I do want to say again, just because I have to say, well, thank you all for coming by and hanging out today. I appreciate you letting me tell my story. I know these uh, streams don't get quite as many people coming to visit, but it is always a blast to get to chat with you all and share this. So thank you very much for that opportunity. Um, so yeah, let's get messy, shall we? As they travel through the city, once again, they are attacked by yet another spider fiend. This is the fourth one. Um, it's important that's the fourth one, because on my paper here, I wrote, they will have to fight at least four of these. Because, <laughs> I, you know, I, I set these things up. Um, if they don't kill it quick enough, then uh, there's a chance a second one could be summoned. Uh, they managed to each time. I rolled each time, and another one, they never had to fight more than one at a time. But that was a possibility of them. These things are solitary creatures and don't normally live together. Um, but hearing one screaming out in battle or something um, would still draw the attention of another one. So there's not like a nest. These things are solitary creatures. Uh, but they end up fighting that one again. Um, nobody took any major damage in that last fight from what I've got written here. The only thing is that um, Tobias had to use a couple big spells um, to avoid Dandy getting hurt. Uh, he had to use, like, a big lightning bolt on this thing, which is one of his few big damaging spells. As a guy who mostly researches and creates um, magic items and such, he didn't take as many offensive spells as he did um, things like reading languages, identifying things, uh, and such. So he's really good at that. You put him in a library and you research something, or he'll find all the stuff you need. But he only has so many damaging uh, spells. That's not, not his uh, specialty. So, um, they managed to defeat it, but he only has one big spell left, and that's a fireball. And he's always hesitant to cast fireball. You should always be hesitant to cast fireball, because fireball is a big boom of fire, and it will hurt everybody in a certain area. And if you're not careful, some of those people are your people. Um, and if you are, happen to be, oh, I don't know, underground in an enclosed area or in a building... Uh, you are trapping people in with a burst of flame that is going in every direction. And if it has nowhere else to go, it'll turn back on itself, causing even more damage. That's how fire works. I researched it. <laughs> so, they make their way in. And they make their way to this tower. Now, this tower, while I said is not the largest, it's still a big tower. Um, it's not as high as some of the others, but it's very wide. It's a fatty tower. Short but very fat. When they get to the doors of it, the doors are sitting in the yard or outside of it, four or five feet away. And these are large doors, and they're just blown right off the hinges. Um, and so they, at this point, have all their weapons out. Artemis has her lions out. 
Uh, they've cast, she's already cast a blessed spell on everybody before they go in there. And when she cast that spell, she almost failed it, which, to be honest with you, is not a kind of spell that normally fails. But something interfered with the spell, and she can tell that while she's casting it. And luckily, her faith and her level is strong enough to do that. Um, but a weaker cleric, that spell might not have happened. And it takes a lot to just block a healing spell that doesn't come with any type of defense. When you look up a spell's stats, it'll say whether or not you can negate it and things of this nature, save for half damage. If you're casting something on somebody, a lot of times they have a chance to be immune or to block it. But when you're casting it on your friends who want the spell, it's a little harder to block that. An outside force. And some outside force did that. Hey, no problem, Big Mac. Appreciate you coming by. We're about to have big fights. Maybe. I think we all knew we were about to have a big fight. I'm not surprising anybody here. Um, so they make their way in, and again, the, 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 the layer they walk into is shambles. Uh, clearly, this was a room where people met. Um, their big table in the center, chairs around it. At least that would be the layout had the table not been literally shattered into pieces from the center and blown back against the wall to the point that chairs and stuff were actually pieces of them. The wood and stone were flung hard enough that they're literally sticking and embedding into the walls. They also, once they came inside, can hear and almost feel a small humming from above them. Almost like there's a vibration in the ground and the walls where they stand and they can slightly hear it. Almost like if you have a, a stereo turned on, but you're not listening to anything. If you know what I mean? Especially an older stereo, where it's got that hum of electricity in the speakers, where there's no music yet, but it's ready to come. It's kind of got that little hum to it. You young kids may not know what I'm talking about. Us oldies, you probably know. Uh, Jim, you're a musician. You know what I'm talking about. You plug it into the amp and there's that hum, but you haven't done anything yet. That's the noise that they're hearing right now. Uh, although there's nobody upstairs with a guitar, don't get excited, Jim. <laughs> yet, there may be a guitar in the future. Who knows? I could see Jim playing a, a bard. That'd be funny. That'd be real funny. Okay, so, marching in. They get there, there are stairs on opposite sides that both spin and go up. Um, and they can see there's a, there's a, there's a, would be a floor above them, right? They go up and then they go into the floor, but there's a big hole busted and part of that's fallen into the ground. And they can see up further into what would be another level, but it's dark up there and they can't see. So they, with nothing else to do, they decide to all go up the same set of stairs. Uh, Cole is able to check them and say, yeah, these stairs are still sturdy. There's, they're carved into the stone. They're not going to cave out from underneath of us. Dandy still goes first, checking for traps, because who knows? And, and then immediately followed by Darsh and then Cole. They're not putting Cole in the front this time because they don't need him to guide. Uh, they need him to just be there to help. And they make their way up. They get to that second level, and this level looks like it was more of a, again, a very large room, maybe even partitioned. Uh, would be probably an area where mages would sit and talk. Areas where there'd be comfortable pillows and couches and maybe refreshments and drinks and food and things. Maybe some bookshelves for that kind of stuff. Um, is what you'd expect the room to be if it wasn't just the floor in the middle of it busted out and everything around it looks like uh, that wasn't stone is burned. What was wood, which was books, 
anything that was tapestries, there was probably a bunch of those. Most of those are completely gone. There may be little pieces of them that didn't quite burn before the uh, fire went out. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, there's just blackened. And the stairs continue going up again. But this time, looking up, there is no hole in the floor. But the humming is louder. And it's not like somebody humming a little ditty either. It's a constant, steady hum, like a like a bunch of bees in a wooden box. Okay. And they carry on. As they go up the stairs, it's a drone. <laughs> droids. These aren't the droids you're working for. Uh, so they're going up to the stairs. Now, they get to an area and they go up the stairs. The stairs are, are pretty wide. Like These are not little thin stairs. These are a big set of stairs where people could be going up and down at the same time. And there's like a, a nice stone railing on the outside of it that parts of that appear to be smashed or crumbled off. And some parts it's perfectly fine. Um, once in a while a piece of the stone, maybe a little piece of the stair is missing, um, but not a whole, whole lot. Um, so they're... Uh, they're working their way up. And when they get to the top of this one, these stairs take a little bit longer to go up to. There's more space between uh, the last floor and this next floor than there was the first and second floor. When they get up to the top of these stairs, there's a large archway, which clearly was a double doors that you could go in here. Uh, the doors are not there, and the archway is busted and crumbled along the side, like something too big to fit through that door came through that door if you will. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to be very descriptive. Hopefully you guys are getting the, the feel for what I'm describing here. I'm, I'm trying to be a little extra descriptive because um, definitely as they're going through this, it's how I described it to them. They are putting together pieces of a puzzle and um, trying to figure out exactly what it is they're about to find up here. So they walk through the doorway. They go very slowly. They moved very quietly and very cautiously. And in the room, it's dark. And that's a problem. Because I say it's dark. Their infravision can't see in there. Mercy can't see in there. Tobias can't see in there. The light of Tobias's torch isn't going through there. It's like there's a black curtain right at the edge of that, at that doorway. And nobody can see past it. When did this start? Uh, the original adventure from this? Uh, 1993. I believe it was. 93 is when we actually started the Fire Moon story. We had some generic adventures in the original world a little bit before that uh, that I had run. Uh, but I really started putting the story together in, uh, I want to say it was, no, it would have been, been late 92, early 93, right after I moved to the U.S. <clears throat> If you're wondering time started today, 8 p.m. It's Sundays at 8 p.m. <laughs> Except for next Sunday, that's a member stream. So, and again, they see darkness. Tobias attempts to dispel it, and it has no effect whatsoever. Artemis attempts to dispel Sorry, it. Sorry, I didn't quite catch Not that. Not you. I said Artemis, and my phone thought I was talking to it. <laughs> funny. That um, startled me for a minute. I'm like, who the hell? Um, Artemis is much more powerful than Tobias is. Really. Like, she's twice his level at this point. 
Um, so when she dispels something, it has way more kick to it, and it still has no effect. Whatever that darkness is, it's a magical darkness, and they can't see through it. Clearly, this is a problem. What do they do? Well, in this situation, there's no way in the world they're going to let Dandy go first. Right? She's up front because she's searching for traps. Nobody can see past this. She can't check for anything. They're not going to put one of their little squishies in the front. So what does that leave? They decide to change party order. I've stressed that the stairs are wide because there's more than enough room for them to do so. Okay? If it was a thin stairs with a big hole on the side, they may not be able to do that, but they can. So they adjust their order. And at this point, it's Darsh and then Mercy. They move Mercy all the way up to the front and they put Ulrich and Dandy at the back. Um, since they're not really at this point as concerned with something behind them, and if it is, they're going to be coming upstairs where Dandy, being as nimble as she is, is probably in the best situation to potentially hold something off a minute until Darsh and Mercy can step back. Um, and Ulrich, he can't see anything anyways without some type of light, so regardless of what happens in there, he might be blind anyways. So they put him in the back where he's going to do a little bit less damage with Artemis, who's still... Right now they can see. They're in an area with Tobias' staff. They can see, but there's like a sheet of darkness there. And there's no noise coming from inside except for the hum, which is definitely a little bit louder and coming from in front of them. So it is Darsh, and then Mercy, and then Cole, and then Tobias, then Artemis, Ulrich, and Dandy at the back, which is something that almost never happens. They try to cast some spells inside to detect magic. Can't get anything past the doorway. Whatever that thing, whatever the... Is the whole room this way, or is it just something at the door? They can't tell. None of their spells, none of their magic, and none of their vision can see through this doorway. They take a moment to be intelligent. And Dandy, along with Mercy, quickly run down the stairs and try to go up the other side. I mentioned there were two sets of stairs. They didn't like splitting up, but if the other side was visible, they'd be foolish to go through the dark side. But going up... Dark side. This isn't a Star Wars thing. When they get up there, it's the exact same situation. They return to their party and let them know. Same thing either side. So regardless, they have this issue. So they decide, well, we clearly have come all this way. We're pretty sure whatever we came here for is in this room. We just can't stand out here all day. We're going to have to go inside. So, quietly and cautiously, they quickly start heading through the door. It only takes a moment to step through the doorway, and immediately upon stepping through, there is light and the chance of death. It takes everything Darsh has to dodge the massive blade that comes swinging at his head the moment his face is through that veil of darkness. And he literally has to allow himself to fall to dodge losing his head. Now, imagine Mercy sees Darsh going in and then just sees Darsh's his feet pop up and then he's gone. Mercy charges in, not knowing what's happening to Darsh. Everybody charging in after. And as they charge in, and Darsh is already moving 
to try to stand back up and deflect the blow from the massive blade swinging once again towards him. Everyone manages to come into the room behind him in time to see the large winged demonic beast that stands in the center of this room. Immediately, the first thing that they see, and even more than see, feel, is that this room is too big to be here. They're walking up the stairs. They were looking up the sides of the tower. From outside, they saw the tower. Now that they're in here, the room feels like it's twice the size it should be, much like the feeling of climbing inside of their chest of holding. This room is unnaturally large. And the thing that stands in front of them stands a minimum of 18 feet tall. Huge pair of demonic wings on its back. Its hair black and greasy and matted to its head. Its skin yellowish and pinkish, glowing in the light of the torches. And the braziers set around the room. In one hand, clawed hand of five fingers, it holds a huge sword with fire coming off of it. The sword itself, longer than mercy, stands tall. In its other hand, it holds a whip with several long, what look barbed, wired-looking things hanging from it in its left hand. And again, each one of those cords is longer than mercy stands tall, half the length of Darsh. And it is bottom half... Uh, it's wearing almost like a loincloth kind of thing, but it does have like a metal uh, a girdle. If you're not sure what a girdle is in D&D, it's like a thick belt that you wear so you can hang things like weapons and uh, stuff around. Balrog, good question. No, not a Balrog. It's not flaming. It's not on fire. Anything like that. It's not even the size of a Balrog. A Balrog was big. This is not that. This is a true Tanari. Uh, Tanari, one of the primary generals and rulers of the Plains of the Abyss, or Hell, depending on your version. A Tanari is Big Sauce. And a true Tanari. It's not a lesser Tanari. This is a full Tanari. And a creature like this uh, is equivalent, if not probably, stronger than the average dragon. To give you an idea. It swings its weapon, and Darsh manages to deflect it with his shield, but it almost rips the shield out of his arm, which healed, still a little bit number than it, he would prefer, still a little bit sore, because um, even the spell, while it heals it up, you still feel ache and stuff. No real physical damage, but the, the, the uncomfortableness is still there. Again, jars his shoulder, it almost feels like it pops out of the socket. This thing came down so hard. At the same time, with its left hand, it whips that whip towards the rest of the party. Mercy gets her shield up and stands in front of Artemis the best she can, and she feels it hit her shield, and she's literally pushed backwards. They've come into the room, again, through the doorway, and kind of split. The room is rounded. Uh, they came out, Darsh is blocking it. As they're coming through, they're having to step to the side for the next one to come in. So half of them go to one side, half of them go to the other. On one side, we have Mercy, we have Artemis, we have Cole. On the other side, we have Tobias, Dandy, and Ulrich. And Darsh standing in the middle. 
just for your layout of this situation. There's nowhere for them to go. They could try to go back through the darkness, but they'd basically be abandoning their allies. They can't go any really further into the room because then they're just going to get close to this giant winged Tanari in the middle of this room. So they're all kind of stuck right in melee range because this thing is big enough that its weapons could probably touch any point in this room. Even though, like I said, it's 18 to 20 feet tall, the roof looks like it's about 30 feet tall. It really looks like this thing is almost too big for this room, which is too big to be here. It definitely doesn't have a lot of room to maneuver uh, outside of the ring. So then we roll for initiative, and the battle begins. Our heroes win initiative. Good roll for them. And the battle begins. This fight takes a while. And as it moves on, and I'm just giving you a basic overview before we get into some of the details. As it moves on, uh, a lot of things get used that we've not talked about before. I've mentioned many times throughout telling this story that I normally only tell you guys about magic items and such that um, you get, or that the characters get, if it has an effect. If they got a couple potions of healing, I don't really worry about it. If it's got a potion of invisibility, unless they're actually going to use it, I don't list every magic item these guys find. And sometimes they use those items. It doesn't have a major effect on the story, so I don't go into it. But this is a situation where they were having to pull out some things that they had been hanging on to for a long time, just in case of an emergency, or they weren't sure how it would work. Uh, they didn't have a lot of choice. They used up everything that they could. Um... Tobias, bit of an issue. Tobias has some magic missiles. He also has a wand of magic missiles, which gives him even more magic missiles to shoot, uh, which makes him beneficial. But his only big spell left is a fireball, and he has a scroll of Melf's Minute Meteors, which are small meteors that would come from the sky and hit your enemies. Won't work that well underground, and in this confined space would also hit his allies. So his two strongest spells he can't cast here without running into seriously damaging his friends as well. So for him, it's just magic missiles. Hi there. No, no, no. Can't go over there. Stay over here. Um, so he's in a spot. He's basically magic missiling. He starts using the wand first, saving his spells in case he does need them for something else some type of shield spell or something. Um, he does have a few defensive spells, but he just starts popping off that wand of magic missiles because while it doesn't do a lot of damage, it'll hurt anything regardless of how strong the weapon has to be to hit it, and it never misses. So it's guaranteed a little bit of damage he's contributing every turn. Not enough to really gain the attention of the Balrog, <laughs> type creature. It's not a Balrog. It's a Tanari. Sorry, I was looking at the screen. It said Balrog and it threw me. The Tanari. should look up a picture of a Tanari. It's very cool. I apologize I didn't have one with me. I couldn't find the good picture of Tanari that I printed out many years ago. It's in one of these binders. Uh, but I will try to get one up on the site if you guys haven't seen it so that you'll know what I'm talking about. So, they move on. Again, the thing wails with its sword down towards Darsh. Darsh is the big thing. Darsh has the big weapon. Darsh was first. <laughs> and this thing is incredibly intelligent. It's not a monster. It's not a beast. It's a general of hell. It literally strategically involved in controlling and running 
armies of hundreds of thousands of other demons. This is not a creature that's going to be fooled with silliness or simple tactics. They have to fight. You'll remember that they fought a lower minor Tenari a long, long time ago, deep beneath the earth, uh, when Moog shot the uh, ballista and hit it. Didn't kill it. This is not the same one. That one was a weak one, and it about messed them up back then. This is much, much stronger. This is, at this point, the strongest thing I've ever put them against. And so the battle ensues. Half of their weapons won't work. Cole can't do anything. None of his weapons are going to affect this thing. Uh, he, he can stand in front and use his weapons to deflect or defend, and that's what he tries to do to help with Artemis. Because Mercy is one of the only people here with a weapon strong enough to hurt this. And she's sticking with the Morningstar. Because her sword's, while well, pretty good, she needs the Morningstar. It's the most powerful weapon she's got. Um, so she's using her Morningstar and her shield. Darsh is using his regular sword, which is his most powerful sword, which I believe is a plus three or plus four at this point. But it's not like a sword of something. It's just a really strong magical sword. Um, and he's going in with that, still using his shield. He can drop a shield and go dual weapon. He just gets, he's not ambidextrous, so he gets a bit of a negative with the other hand. Um, but at this point, he's still keeping the shield because he's having to take the deflection of this big sword and moving back and forth to try to protect his smaller friends. Uh, Dandy starts throwing her magical daggers. She's never going to get close enough in on this thing to stab with a magical dagger. She's not stupid enough to think she's ever going to get to backstab this thing. So throwing her magical daggers is the best shot she's got of doing some pretty good damage. Because she has several magical daggers, I've stressed this, that can do some damage. But once those are gone, she doesn't have much else other than what's in her pouches. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> Sorry. So... Ulrich has one sword. His plus three Frostbrand is now he has a sword strong enough to help. So next to Darsh and Mercy, he's the next one in line who really can do some potential damage on this thing. But he also is the weakest of the three of them. So he's easier to hit from the monster. Armor class is lower, basically. Even though he's got good armor, his armor class is still lower than Mercy. She's got Her and Darsh have magical armor at this point of different levels and rings of protection and such. He only has a ring of protection plus one, and he has his ring of uh, fire resistance uh, that he has from earlier, the first magic item that they had extra that she gave him. And so he's just using a sword, and he's got a, he uses two scimitars normally, but he also carries a shield. He's wielding the shield and the good scimitar, trying to help deflect against the whip. The whip, when it does hit, doesn't actually do a whole lot of damage. But what it does is it numbs. So if I hit your arm or I hit your leg, um, your arm and leg are numb, you can't attack with that round. If you try to walk, you have to roll to see whether you fall down. It's almost like your arm or leg going to sleep. If I hit something important, like your head or your chest, there's a chance I knock you unconscious. I may not even do but one hit point. But the shock of it, literally the electricity on it, is what will, uh, will stun you. And that's for everybody. So the whip is not as much used for damaging as it is to weakening and making the other foes slower and or unconscious so that I can, you know, can use my massive, huge sword to chop them into bits. A sword that very easily is cutting and chopping into the stone. The fight begins. 
Artemis sends her lions in. She knows that the lions can't hurt this, but if nothing else, it might draw some of his attention. If a lion gets killed, it just becomes the fig- goes back to the figurine and she can't use it for a day, for 24 hours. So not that she wants it to get hurt, but if it dies, nothing really dies. So if it can take a hit so it doesn't kill one of her friends, it's worth it. Um, so that's what she, she tosses her lions down and they go running in to attempt to help as well. Um, so that's their allies. Cole, again, he's just trying to defend. He doesn't have anything else he can do. Tobias is shooting his magic missiles. The other three people are fighting. Dandy is throwing her daggers. The first couple of rounds, that's how that works. After two rounds, Dandy is out of magical daggers. Tobias is still casting his spells. Uh, Cole has taken a big hit from that whip, and he's basically fallen to the ground, stunned, not moving, which means Mercy now is having to half-attack, half-defend Artemis. And this thing begins to target Artemis. Darsh and Artemis become its two targets. Because this thing is a creature of pure, unadulterated evil. And that's a cleric of good. Uh, not the cleric of the light, not the main good, but the second in command. <laughs> Her god is married to the goddess of light, and uh, creatures of darkness, not a big fan of that. So that puts Mercy on a big defensive, trying to protect Artemis, because now the whip keeps coming that direction, because it wants to stop Artemis from being able to heal her friends. The fight moves on. Several of the characters take large hits, mostly from the sword. Every so often, instead of trying to come at Darsh with the sword, it'll swing at Mercy or swing at Ulrich. Once rarely, I think once at twice tops he tried to swing at Artemis when Mercy made a, a big swing and he tried to sneak past her. Um, but most of it, it went at Darsh with the occasional Mercy Artemis. This fight lasted longer than normal. Taking a moment so I can take a sip. Ulrich's shield is knocked to the ground. Now he's using his scimitar with two hands, which he can, he can do. Um, doesn't really help him anymore, but uh, for defensive, it will help him be able to block a stronger hit a little bit easier. So if it's trying to block the big sword, he may not take as much damage. He's not physically strong enough to fully block it like Darsh can with a blade, um, but it still might brunt it a little bit. Uh, Mercy... Uh, in a wild, crazy mercy moment of openness, actually throws her morning star at the thing's head. Um, unexpecting that, the creature moves its arm to deflect it. And for Mercy's second turn, she swings at its now exposed underarm stomach area with her morning star that immediately reappears in her hand as it's trying to block it. It was a very smooth move to use on a large creature. She'd never tried that before, and it actually worked in her behavior, or in her uh, in her favor. 
was not something that was going to work twice. I stress to them as I've stressed to you, this is something that knows what's going on. It's being very careful to try and keep them pinned against that wall and not letting them get around it. Anytime somebody tries, that's when it's making the slash at Mercy and the slash at Ulrich, keeping him pinned in behind Darsh, where it's main focus. And Darsh starts taking some damage. Darsh takes more damage than anybody else in most fights because he is, from a video game perspective, the tank. He's the big guy in front who keeps the attention because he does the most damage on a regular turn. Mercy did get a good hit with that Morningstar, though. I was very proud of that, uh, that little uh, thought. She'd never tried that before, and I liked it. Dandy has no daggers. Her hoop pack was, was spelled to be a plus one. Not going to do anything against this. The silver bullets that she has still won't hurt this at all. Turtle asks, could they back out of the room and regroup now that they know what's happening? Potentially, they could try. But the concern is, for every person that goes out of the room, this thing may then move forward. It could try to block them. And with less people to help defend, who goes first? If Artemis steps out first, she could be safe. But now if somebody needs a healing, she can't cast a healing. And they can't talk through. There's no sound that goes through that. So when the big thing swung at Darsh to begin with, they didn't hear any of that until they went through. So there's no communicating in and out. I think in the, in the moves, the things I was doing at the time, I was very careful to try to keep them pinned against the wall where they couldn't stay too grouped up. They would have to turn to try to get out. So they did not try to leave. It's potential. Artemis or Cole probably should have, but then I hit Cole with the whip and he hit the ground and he was on the ground for four rounds. I rolled, it's 1d4 rounds and I rolled a four on it. Uh, so he was down for a good four rounds. Dandy having nothing else to do reaches into her pouches. It's not something she does that often. I'm really surprised by that. It's something that a lot of people who play a Kender enjoy doing. Because she doesn't know what's in her pouches. A kender doesn't. A kender has a hundred pouch slots. And occasionally, she'll find something and say, I want to put this in my pouch. She finds a, a purple feather with some string on it and a blue bead that she thinks is really pretty. I'm going to put that in my pouch. I'm like, okay, cool. Here's your page with a hundred slots on it. Write it on the paper somewhere. And that's where that is. But she did, her bags are pretty much full at all times. And at any time, she could say, I pull something out of my pouch. There's a chart for me to roll on. I roll what that is, and I tell her, you find a uh, rat skull. You find a skeleton's finger bone. You know, these are things that are on the chart. You find a broken piece of rainbow-tainted uh, glass. You find a dagger plus one. Sometimes you'll find a magic item in there because Kender subconsciously take things and pick things up without realizing it. And unless they're focusing and looking in their pouches, sometimes they don't know what that stuff is. It's a fun part of being a Kender. Eventually, you'll get to the point where um, you know what's in all of your pouches. And then from that point on, there's a 10% chance that when you go to take that thing out, it's not there anymore. Something else has replaced it. And I rule again. And for every round that you pull out something you know what it is, that adds 10% to next time. So the next round, there's a 20% chance that you're going to pull something out that you didn't know was there. Or a third and a fourth. Eventually, you'll get to that point where you're going to pull something out you didn't know was in there. 
Um, it's not per round, it's per attempts. But it takes a round to pull it. You're really unbuttoning, pulling it, pulling it. So she did this, and she found a were-rat knuckle bone. Probably wondering where she got a were-rat knuckle bone. I'll have you know, she also wanted to know where she got a were-rat knuckle bone. And how she knew it was a were-rat knuckle bone. But it was. Danny pulled out a were-rat knuckle bone in the middle of that fight. She was really hoping for a miscellaneous magic item, which there's a chance of. There's a 5% chance that there's a miscellaneous magic item in there. She pulled out a were-rat knuckle bone. Artemis could not ask for divine intervention because she already used it once on this level. And as I mentioned, you can only attempt it once per level. And at her level, I mean, there's a good chance that they'd answer, but that was not an opportunity at this situation. Um, so there was that. So again, the fight proceeds. Dandy, not as successful, decides to no longer check in her pouches, but instead starts asking me about the room. I then explain to her. Uh, let me find it so I can tell it to you as I told it to her. That around the room, I mentioned earlier, there was light. That there are five, no, sorry, seven braziers with green and red fire, or sorry, red and green symbols on them. And each one has a purple flame coming out. These are sitting on the floor. A brazier uh, very often is like a pot or like uh, almost like an upside down symbol, a symbol like the musical instrument uh, symbol that has things in it that would burn. Oils or coal, whatever you want to put in there, fuels of some kind. Um, a brazier is often used. Sometimes they hang from the roof. Um, it's basically like a fire pot. Um, but these are very ornate braziers sitting around. And then melee, that's what she did that turn. Everybody else is fighting. Ulrich goes down. Struck in the head with the whip. Ulrich is knocked unconscious and falls to the ground. Another reason they didn't leave is that Cole was laying on the ground stunned. Cole is up at this point. He just finally came back up the same round that Ulrich went down. Purely coincidental. I didn't plan that. Ulrich hits the ground. His sword falls from his hands. And he is unconscious. Darsh now trying to help cover him as well. Because I'm not going to lie. This guy then took a swing at Ulrich which really pissed Mercy off. And Mercy decides to once again throw the Morningstar. She didn't do it in the same way. This time she wasn't doing it as a precaution or as a, a distraction thing. She legit tried to use it as a throwing weapon because the thing had turned and she was trying to hit it in the head. It's a, you can do something called a cold shot. It's one of the things that, I don't know if it's in D&D now, but it's part of our blue line rules. A cold shot is I'm going to specifically try to hit something. If I'm an archer, I'm going to shoot that guy. But a cold shot is I'm going to shoot that guy in the left eyeball. It's a lot harder to do it, but if you pull it off, you get some extra damage, extra perks, things of that nature. Um, depending on what you're doing and how your dandy's throwing a dagger says, I'm going to try to knock that cup off of uh, that wheel over there. That's different than saying I'm going to throw this at that cup. I'm going to literally try to knock it off using the butt end of the blade and not the dagger. Okay. Here's what you have to roll to do that. You got a shot. 
There's always a chance you pull it off. The more difficult, the smaller the chance. Mercy throws the Morning Star. This little guy, well, not little guy, big guy, uh, was waiting for an opportunity like that. And as it throws, he switches direction and brings the weapon slashing at her. She's summoning in her, her Morning Star. As soon as she sees the blade switch, summons it back. But that move does not give her the chance to defend herself with her shield as well. She's overreached. And she takes a huge amount of damage. The blade cuts through her armor, which is magical, by the way. Destroying it. It loses its magic at this point. It cuts through and does a slash across her chest down to her stomach. And it hurts. Blood's coming out. Artemis screams. Oh, you know, you know, oh my god. Uh, and it's a big hit, and she stumbles backwards. And the thing just starts laughing. It was waiting for that opportunity. Dandy gets her staff sling out and her silver bullet, and she fires one. And she hits successfully. And the brazier she was aiming for tips over and the whatever fluid inside that was burning leaks out onto the floor and the flames go out. And the demon in front of them staggers back momentarily like it had been punched in the face. No one else realizes what Dandy's done. They just see that it takes a hit. And this is what Darsh was waiting for. Waiting for his opportunity. So Darsh decided, here's my chance to do something heroic and really, really stupid. Darsh activates his charge boots. And with his entire weight behind him, goes charging in to the now exposed stomach area of this Tanari. With the speed, and he weighs like, normally without armor, Darsh weighs over 350 pounds. With his armor on, he's over 420. He's a very heavy dude. Um, he rushes forward with full momentum of his normal strength, but now magnified, and just goes right into this thing. Doesn't knock it over. Anything else, he, he, he would have sent it flying. This thing, he doesn't knock it over, but he does bury that sword in really, really deep. So deep that he can't pull it out again. But not only does he get his sword shoved into the stomach, he also uses the one attack he doesn't get to use that much. Because it's rare that he gets to fight something bigger than him. And he also stabs his one remaining horn into it as well and gores it. The thing has a thick leather-like skin, but it is still skin. And it does rip a chunk out of it. Not a horrendous amount of damage, but it's more of an insult at that point. I'll read it. Let's see, Darsh is the Merge World's character tank. Very much so. 
Now he's in there in super close-up melee range. The thing staggered back. Dandy notices something else because she'd been watching for any clue and she asked me certain things. And she asked me, did it step backwards? And I said, no, it did not step backwards. And so she says, I want to watch it to see if it moves. And in the rounds that she was watching it, at no time did it ever move its feet from where it was standing. It reeled back, it leaned in, it reached out, its wings buffeted, but at no time did its feet leave the place where it was. Uh, let's see here. Question. Something I like about D&D, or at least what I think I know about it, is that there is no plot armor. Anyone can die, no matter how important they are to the story. That is true. And again, I never set out to kill anybody who's a character. I do plan to kill NPCs sometimes. Sometimes that happens because it's what's good for the story. But I would never purposefully kill a character. There's always a chance it can happen. If it isn't, then they're not really fighting something that's a challenge to them. But it's never the goal. But by God, I'm going to make it hard to survive sometimes. Dandy had found the braziers, and she had found that this thing's feet were somehow stuck in one place. It was not wearing shoes, had big taloned feet, but the feet never moved. It leaned into attack. It was when it was when it was back knocked by uh, the the brazier thing. It leaned back as if it got punched, but its feet never moved. So while Dandy is now shooting her second silver bullet at another brazier, granted it gets harder each time because some of them are further away from her, and she can't get closer. She asks me, "Do she see anything else?" on the floor or the walls that appear to be lines, runes, or anything glowing. And I say yes. There appears to be some type of white powder on the ground. Not powder, uh, like chalk, like drawings with some type of ink or chalk on the ground around where they are. Like in between and such in the ground. That's all, but it's more of a drawing. And she asks, is any of it smudged or erased? And I say, no, but it's all glowing except for one part near one of the braziers. There's one spot where it's not glowing. She fires her second bolt and she knocks another brazier over. Again, the thing howls out like it's been injured. Darsh at this point is ripped his horn out and finding he can't pull the sword out of the thing's stomach reaches back into that javelin of lightning he has in that uh, 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 quiver of holding and instead of throwing it stabs the thing. So the reason it's a javelin because it does an area of effect damage. If you throw it and hit something, it does lightning damage. If you throw it and you miss and it hits the ground, sticks in the ground, it then does lightning damage in a range area, which still does 50% of the damage to anything in the area of effect. He stabs it. So it's a direct hit, but he's holding on to it. And so he also takes the same amount of damage. It does a lot. 
it did a good chunk. Basically, at this point, it's the level of a six six level mage, which is six d six worth of damage. So a minimum of six damage, maximum of thirty six. That's how the dice part works. Uh, and he did close to I think it was like twenty seven or twenty eight. It was in the high twenties. Um, but it's a strong damage, and you can save for half. Neither he nor the creature successfully made their saving throw. And so Darsh took the same amount of damage from electricity. It took the electricity damage plus the damage of a javelin with his strength bonus. A javelin, if I remember correctly, did 1d6 damage, and he has a plus 4 because of his strength. So he did an additional... Uh, I think he did, like, he rolled a 4 or 5, so he did, like, another 8 or 9 points of damage from the stabbing, plus the 28 damage from the electricity. He also takes the electricity damage, which tosses him backwards. Uh, is the area of effect exponential? In other words, does the effect do less damage the further away the center you are? Yes, that is exactly accurate. Yes, it does half damage of what it would do if it strikes in a 10-foot radius, and then it will do a quarter of damage for the next 10-foot radius. It's a 20-foot radius total, if I remember correctly. Or maybe 8 and 8 and 10 and 10, but it's got two circles like that. It's a bit more custom-made. There's a You can find them in the player's handbook for 2nd edition, but these ones were custom. They worked a little bit differently. Um, but, yeah, they, they had like a double range like that. But, you're immune to them until they're triggered. Like, he, he, he can't accidentally stab himself. That doesn't happen. It has to be used in a way to do that. Hey there, Patchy. It's not three times yet, sweetie. This does a good chunk of damage to the creature. And Darsh, who's just tossed off his feet and sent backwards. Tobias, still magic missling. <laughs> There's really not much else he can do in this situation. Cole is standing over Ulrich, who has just now come conscious again. And Cole is standing over Ulrich, holding Ulrich's sword. He's not good with his scimitar. He doesn't quite know how to use it. But it's still a magical sword, and he's slashing the best he can. He does a little bit of damage. Not a lot, because his chance to hit with that weapon is not good at all. Uh, but he does do a few points of damage to help out. But he's more and more, he's kind of standing. And to be honest, he's being ignored right now anyway, so there's no really a lot of attacks coming at him. Mercy, again, rushes in to do her damage. With the thing kind of leaning back and Darst doing the damage blown back, Mercy charges in now. And she's going to use her big old morning star. And her thought is, at this point, she wants to do another cold shot. And I'm like, Mercy, you're, 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 you're borderlining on this is crazy now. She goes... I just want to try and see if it'll work. I don't know if it will. I'm like, okay, cool. So she does a cold shot. Her roll is good enough that she successfully does it. So instead of hitting the creature, she manages to haul off like a hammer and slam into the butt end of Darsh's sword, which is still sticking in its belly, which, with a full strength, she's no slouch, causes it to do even more damage inside of the creature, because it's a big sword. During this round, Dandy fires and knocks a cold shot. Yes, so a cold shot is what I mentioned earlier. If I'm an archer and I say, I'm going to shoot that guy, I roll and I hit. If I say, I want to shoot that guy in the eye, I'm saying I'm shooting for a specific thing. I am calling my shot. Kind of like Babe Ruth saying, I'm going to hit it over there. Saying, I'm going to shoot for the bullseye. If I say I'm going to shoot at that target, I might hit it. 
I say I'm aiming for the bullseye, it's harder. So I get negatives to my roll. But if I successfully hit that, I have the chance that it may have a different effect. So if I shoot someone in the eye, it may do more damage. It may kill them. It may go right into their brain. Or if it's a hill giant, I might blind them, which will make it harder for them to hit my allies for a little while because now they got blood streaming out of its face. So a called shot is when you're saying, I'm going to not, I'm hitting this guy. I'm aiming specifically for this guy's left eyeball. How late does this go again? 10.30. On average. Although sometimes I float to 11 if I'm in the middle of good stuff. Uh, and it's currently 10.08, if any of you are wondering. Eastern Standard Time. Um, so, yes. She hauls off and she manages to successfully hammer that sword, like a hammer hitting a nail, deeper into the gut of the creature, which screams out, dropping its whip but at the same time, backhanding Mercy. Uh, this thing is strong. Mercy goes flying. Not hard enough to hit the wall, but enough to knock her down and take a chunk of damage. Still got big old meaty hands that are like this, right? Thwack! And it goes flying back. Um, it is now, but it wasn't when I said that. Remember, there's a delay. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> meaty, meaty slap. She's back. Next round begins. Darsh standing back up. Mercy standing back up. The creature, the Tanari, rips the sword out of its own stomach, tossing it aside with its one hand, and with its sword hand coming straight at Darsh. Even though Mercy did that last thing, Darsh has been irritating for two rounds, and he's tired of Darsh, and Darsh is currently unarmed. No shield, no weapon in his hand. Cole hands the sword back to Ulrich, who gets one attack this round, because his other his other attack was taking the his other action was taking the sword back from Cole. Artemis casting a heal spell on Darsh at a range at this point. Because she knows he's taking the most damage. She calls that before she knows what the other guy's doing. So everybody calls out their actions, then we roll for an issue. And Dandy wins. And knocks another brazier over. Barely. These ones are getting further now. She's knocked the closest ones over. This again, like a punch in the face, affects the Tanari. And the Tanari starts looking around for the source of it. And Dandy knows the jig is up. So Dandy runs right Mercy gets up. Darsh is up. Darsh still takes some damage, but as that damage was coming in, the brazier got knocked over, so he does not do a full swing, but it's enough to cut Darsh again pretty deeply. He's probably down to less than 20 hit points at this point. For a guy who has like 70 at this point, he's, he's in rough shape. He's got a lot of injuries on him. And there's blood flowing down his face. Some of it's his. Some of it came from the stomach of the creature. And that stuff burns a little bit. Not enough to do... Uh, you know, actual damage, but enough to make you uncomfortable. Mercy is up. Her morning star is back in her hand, but her shield has been sent flying. She then draws her sword, so she's dual wielding. Again, taking a bit of a negative with the sword, but it's better than having an empty hand at this point. Artemis is behind her. 
casting a spell on Mercy because she's close enough to be able to reach her, so she does more healing there. Cole just trying to stay out of the way. <laughs> Ulrich is attacking. And Dandy does what Dandy does best, run and slides between the creature's legs. Dandy has no magic daggers left. She has nothing she can hit this thing from behind. She's not trying to backstab it. Backstabbing, it's not going to do any good with her hoop hack. It won't hurt it. She knows that. But as soon as she slides through its legs, she makes a run for the braziers. Because this thing can't move its feet, which means it can't turn around. It can try to reach. But once she's truly behind it, it can't turn around. Its feet are stuck in one specific spot. And like a golf pro with that hoop pack, thwaps another brazier, sending it flying. So there's only two, if I remember correctly. Over the next couple of rounds, Darsh and Mercy and Ulrich fighting for their lives as this thing starts flailing and swinging wildly, doing some damage. At one point, almost hitting Cole again. Almost hit Ulrich and Cole with one big sweeping hit. Ulrich did get hit, but luckily it missed Cole. Ulrich has, like, barely got five hit points left. One more hit, and Ulrich is either unconscious or dead, depending on the amount of damage it does. But Artemis is again trying to heal Darsh with this spell. She had to choose. She chooses Darsh, because choosing the weaker guy, and then Darsh dies, they're all going to die. Healing Darsh makes sense. So she throws her heal at Darsh. Again, remember, when she throws a heal at a distance, it only does half the potency of when she's laying hands. Mercy got a good heal the last round from Artemis. So Mercy's actually doing okay on hit points. She's probably about 50-60% of her hit points back. And now she's trying to swing with that sword. Because she does, her sword is strong enough to hit. So she's Morningstar and sword dual wielding. She just doesn't do as much damage with her offhand. The thing is flailing wildly. And Dandy thwaps another brazier over. It's at this point that the creature stops swinging and starts screaming words they don't understand as it points at a wall. And looking, they can see the wall starts to swirl. It becomes black and twirling. And then it becomes black and red. This all happens very quickly. He's like, and then this thing starts swirling. And they all know he's casting a spell. And from the other side of that, they can hear screaming, screeching of creatures. And then it's the, it's the next round. It's time to roll for initiative again. Mercy's going to charge in and attack. Darsh is going to charge in and attack. And Ulrich says, screw it. I'm going to charge in and attack. They all know they've got to try to stop this spell. Tobias, who screams, you've all got to stop this spell, <laughs> shoots with his magic missile wand, which for the record... Almost empty at this point. Cole's just looking there like, what the hell is going on? He doesn't know. And Artemis is again trying to throw another heal at Darsh. And everybody rolls initiative. And Mercy wins. And she hits the creature. And then Ulrich is next and hits the creature. Before Darsh gets to go, the demon wins. 
But before the demon goes, Dandy wins initiative. And Dandy, without hesitation, like a football player, kicks that last brazier as hard as she can. And it goes flying away from the circle. And as it does, all those lines on the floor flare up. And purple flames shoot up from them. These flames don't burn. In fact, they're cold. And our characters feel almost frozen to the bone as they're struck with them. But the demon just starts screaming. Angry screaming, not in pain. And it takes that giant sword and he brings it, like I said, he beats Darsh right down on the middle of Darsh's head. And it passes through Darsh like he's a ghost. It doesn't even hit the ground as the demon's body is turning to almost like an ash, a dust. It's fading and pieces of it are starting to float off of it. It's no longer fully physical, fully corporal. And the sword and everything, it starts to fade up and it feels it's busting up and it's twisting up. And above him, a black and purple vortex is spinning. The spell the demon was casting, fully interrupted, completely gone off the wall. And the demon stops and looks at Dandy. And Dandy just sitting there with her hands on her hips with a big old smile on her face because Dandy was proud she figured it out. And it just stares at her angry and it stops screaming. And it's looking at her like it's memorizing what she looks like as it finally fades off into dust through the vortex above which closes, and the room goes dark. So for those who have infravision, their infravision kicks in. For Mercy, immediately her dark vision kicks in. Ulrich and Tobias can't see anything. <laughs> Tobias lights his torch, his uh, staff up, and they're now standing inside this room, and the chalk that was on the floor is all smudgy and mushed around but there's no other sources of light. I'm going to give you a little bit of information as I told them what the actual source of this was. 200 years earlier, a Shinar mage attempted to summon a lower demon. As is common, not necessarily an evil act. They summon a demon to ask it a question. You can successfully summon a demon of the right strength. You can ask it a question. Where will this happen? When will this happen? Where would I find this? Maybe he was looking for a magic item. Maybe he was trying to find an old friend. Nobody knew. But he's trying to summon a demon. And he's using a spell he definitely was not strong enough to cast. And when he drew out all the intricate sigils that would lock that demon in place, he made a tiny, tiny mistake. 
So when he did, it opened up that doorway. Instead of the demon that would have come through, the Tanari saw the opening and came through to the prime material world itself. Drastically stronger than the mage. In an instant, cleaved the mage in half. How did they figure this all out? Normally we do the whole, if they really want to know it, I tell them some just for fun of it, so they can find out. We say that it's researched, maybe somebody casts a spell to see, you know, different things like that. It's just giving a little bit of the backstory, because this isn't giving away anything that's going to happen in the future. So sometimes they would like to know what happened, kind of like reading a book. Oh. Lego! Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you, sir. You have yourself a good night. Appreciate you swinging in. Oh, goodness. So again, yeah, sometimes it's just like when you're reading a book. The heroes may not know, but you get to know it. I gave them a little bit of the story, but I'm giving a little bit more to you, the listener, than even they got to hear. Um, so the mistake was enough to let this demon through, was enough to let this demon cleave, but the spell was strong enough that it kept the demon from leaving that spot. With the death of the mage, the casting ended. The demon, surprisingly, found himself trapped there. Not strong enough to leave. So he used a gate spell to summon some of his minions. Find me what I need to, to break out of this spell. Bring me items of magic. Bring me spell casters. Bring me their components. There's, bring me what I need to break out of this. And he started summoning in his demons. But as he did, each time, he grew weaker. The spell that held him there was sapping some of his strength. He didn't realize that until he, the demons he started summoning were weaker and weaker, and he knew that he had now trapped himself in this spot. But he was confident. He brought some pretty powerful minions on and sent them out. Go and find what I need. Bring me items of magic that I may drain them of their magic juices and use them to free myself so I may walk across this world. And those creatures, the Sharn and the Spider Fiends and all the other little demons that went out there, began to tear through the Dwarven Kingdom, searching and killing and slaughtering without cause in a night of destruction unseen before in these lands. But as the demons moved further away from the Tanari, they too got weaker. And so they could only go so far. And surprisingly, the more powerful the demon, the closer they had to be to the Tanari. Or else it risked being dispelled. And no demon wants to go back. They want to rain hell on the material plane. They live for that opportunity. The weaker got to go further. That was your Sharnlings. But that's why nothing ever was able to leave. Nothing ever went a certain distance past, because they couldn't go that far from the Tanari. And the Tanari, at one point, realized that these folks were coming, and that they carried a lot of magical items. So he cast the spell on the door to try to get them in there, so he could take those items, because they had more than enough artifacts and items on them, for him to be able to break his way free. But instead, by disrupting the braziers, the things that kept him locked here, that he couldn't touch himself, part of the spell, 
he was sent back, as was everything else that he gated. That's what they're trying to say. That's correct. That's why certain things only went a certain distance. But, um, yes. So, so dark vision, basically, it doesn't look any darker than a certain light level, but it can be brighter. Yeah, so basically, when you're... Dark, dark vision means it's like a regular day for you. Imagine a cloudy day outside. There's no sun. It's a little gloomy, but you can see everything. That's what it looks like all the time. Yeah, lights can make things brighter, and magical darkness might make it darker, but regular darkness, no matter how dark it is, still looks like a regular day for you. That's dark vision. The difference between dark vision and infravision. But yes, so with the death of this Tanari, all the other demons under control had no strength to keep it there. Again, they had to be within a certain distance. But a Tanari cannot be killed on the material plane. They can only truly be banished. And when they're banished, they're banished for a period of time. Depending on the scenario. But that means someone has taken away their opportunity to raise and destroy on the mortal world. And they do not take that kindly. And that Tanari, no matter where it is or where it goes, it's going to remember Dandy. It's going to remember Dandy for a long time because these things' lives are almost infinite. They can be killed on the plane of their origin, but uh, that's not an easy thing to do either. Confused because I'm late to the story. <laughs> it's all right, Bragg. I understand. But they were successful. We're going to run a few minutes later than normal today because we're going to sum up a couple of other little things here. But they did take some time to search around. They went around the rest of this cavern. They went to the other um, uh, cavern of the other clan that was open. They found the same type of destruction and death. And they found the remnants of the webs. The webs end up being a lot of places. There were 16 spider fiends out in the world with three more in the actual sh uh, Shinar section. So all the other ones were gone, but they find a lot of looks of them. So they do die, get sent back to where they come from, I presume, the Nine Hells. Uh, kind of. Kind of Hells. Uh, the Abyss exists 999 levels. Some people say 666. Depends on what version you're playing. But there are many, many levels and sub-levels of Hell. Um, there's a lot of them. And there's war on all of them. And the deeper you go, the worse things get. Oh yes, this is from the Abyss. Yeah. So the, the deeper you go, uh, the, the scarier things that you find. Um, but yes. So... They finish searching out. They do go to the gate of the Ventoy, which is closed, and there's nothing in front of it. No bodies, no nothing. Clearly, it's not been opened in a very long time. Cole puts his hand on it for a moment and kind of puts his head against the wall and then says, all right, it's time to go home. And they spend the next almost week making their way up. The first day is hard. Artemis has, like, no healing left, and they're just barely crawling around, <laughs> walking. But as they rest and she can heal them, they start to make more and more movements and make more and more of their way up top. It takes them almost a week, though, because as they're going up, they're not being foolish. They're looking around a little bit, making sure they, there isn't still anything there. They didn't hear all the story I told you. So they do spend some time on each level searching around again for any signs. Uh, thankfully, no more mage gems. But they don't find any, anything else. 
So they make their way up to the top level. And when they get there, there's not a single Sharnling to be found. What if, uh, what of the story did they hear? They heard only enough that Tobias was able to assume the basics. That Tobias is like, okay, well, clearly someone tried to cast a spell for a demon. Wasn't power enough to hold the demon. Or they made a mistake. And Tobias can say that spell the demon was casting was a gate spell to try to bring something through. So he can assume, hey, he was gating in these other creatures. This is clearly the boss monster. So he can figure out that kind of stuff. You know, um, that kind of thing. Uh, no idea yet, Bragg. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm about to start running a home game with some friends so I can test out 5th edition and get my feet under me for it. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly when yet. I was hoping to by then, but unfortunately we've run into a, some PC snags that have slowed things down for me over the past month. Um, and we're still trying to get the second member server up and running, which the PC thing has slowed down as well. I promise I am working on all that. I don't have a specific ETA on when the D&D stuff's going to start or who's going to be in the first group. I'm The home game I'm going to play at least a few times before I do anything live because I've got to make sure I work out the kinks of the system. When will the Behind the Dice come out? I'm filming the first episode tomorrow. Um, not saying it's going to be out tomorrow specifically. I am filming it tomorrow. Uh, assuming I run into no PC issues. Uh, I'm going to film it tomorrow and then I'm going to try to edit it and have it up um, on Friday. Friday's the day I wanted to release that every week. Uh, so that's my goal. Because Tuesday, Tuesday and Friday are the days I don't stream. So Tuesday is the day I try to put up uh, tutorials. And then Friday was going to be, at least one Friday out of the month, was going to be behind the dice. Uh, so that way I don't have videos coming out on the same day that I stream, so I'm not competing with myself, if you know what I mean. Uh, and that way there's a little something coming out on the channel almost every day. It's kind of the goal. So that every day there's at least a little bit of material from the channel you'll get a chance to watch uh, and kind of hopefully enjoy, depending on if you're into all of it or not. But they make it up to the top after this week and such. And they get up there and they, as they are coming into the halls again, the dwarves are shocked to see them. They've been gone a while now. And like everyone else, they assumed they'd never be seen again. They hoped, but you know, what are the chances? This ragtag group of adventurers, led by one heroic dwarf, uh, would have a chance of succeeding. So when they return... They're taken to the High Thane immediately. Duberin is summoned, and everyone is brought in. They tell the story of everything that happened and what they were able to figure out and what they found below. Cole, of course, backing up everything, right? Wanting to make sure that, yes, this happened, this is what we found. Uh, even mentions that there was no signs of anything around the Ventoy clan, which no one ever expected. They explain the demons and that they believe at this point that there are no more demons below, though they don't know for sure. The leader of the Shinar, the Shinar thing, immediately, upon hearing what's happened, does not try to deny it or anything and accepts responsibility and says, my, my, my Thane, I understand that all of this was brought on by a member of my people. This I did not know. None of us here were there that night. But it still falls upon my people, all the death and such below. 
And should you wish our lives to be taken or exiled, we will accept any and all punishments that you give us. And Hythane smiles and says, I would, I would never wish a punishment on a clan because one of your people shall make, made a mistake. But we will definitely have a conversation about what magics are legally going to be allowed to be cast in the kingdom of Corman. To which this general's like, yeah, okay, we get that. Um, right, I'll try to catch up with the questions and such when I can. Um, so, there's celebration. There's excitement from the thing. Finally, after all these years, there's a chance they can get back down there. The thing immediately starts calling for a party to be put together. Several parties. They're going to go down in waves to check out and make sure, make sure there's nothing else down there. The best warriors they have, bringing everybody in, bringing in their clerics, bringing in their mages, the Shinar, immediately fain, uh, offering to send every living Shinar down in the first group. They feel that they should be the... Uh, Definitely, they want to bring their magics in and such and are happy to put their lives on the line in the first group. Uh, I can't make the stream tomorrow, Little Mermaid rehearsal. All right, best of luck to you, Turtle. Um, so, this immediately starts being put together and they're all kind of, uh, the heroes are kind of staying in the middle while the Thane's yelling out and everybody starts doing commands and they're all still like, okay. And then, Dubrin walks up to them and smiles. And you can see there's wetness in his eyes, never really believing he was going to get to see his homeland before he died again. And he walks up and he he takes his Mercy's hand and pats the back of her hand and smiles and says, you done good. And he says, as soon as we can take back my forge, I swear my best work ever done will be putting back together your man's spear. To which they're very much relieved. So we're almost done for today, but not completely. Still a little something else we've got to do. The doors is said are over Jordan. Dubrin is going to prepare Menandra. They're going to send in several scout parties to confirm that there's no more threat. But they are told that it's going to be at least a month. They're going to take they're going to take some time to go down and search every nook and cranny they can to make sure there's no more problems. They don't want to put more lives in danger. And it'll take a little bit of time for them to get some of the Kelt wood and bring it to Dubrin and for Dubrin to get his forge up and running again. They're expecting it should take about a month for him to have Menandra repaired. That's, that hurts. That's a chunk of time. But, if they get it fixed and get back to Menandra, it's only been like a month, month and a half since they left Menandra. I mean, since uh, they left uh, Lamia, who had, trying to figure out how to fix Menandra. Um, that's plenty of time. They're like, okay, not super, but please, like, we, we don't want to rush you. We want you to do the best work you can, but his life is dwindling. They're like, oh yeah, totally understand. Until then, the heroes will be literally heroes treated as the grooviest people the dwarves have ever seen. And the sound. There will be this evening, though, first. There will be a night of celebration for everyone where they will celebrate uh, these new celebrities they've got and all the hard work that they've done. And so that night, there's celebration. And there's adventure and there's party and there's drinking. Lots of drinking. Oh my god, Mercy and Darsh got so hammered. But before that happened, Darsh starts talking to the High Thane and to some of the Merchant's Guild and the Thane himself, eager 
to start trading with the outside world. They're going to need coin and supplies if they're going to start rebuilding their kingdoms. And once they get down there, they know to get their mines up and running. They get all that stuff running. Hi, buddy. I know. They get all that stuff running. They're going to need coin. And they're also going to need to get the word out there to all dwarves, whether they're from their world or not. The dwarven kingdom is being rebuilt. And the dwarven king is calling his people home. And any and all dwarves who wish to come are welcome to come in there. Not saying they won't let humans and stuff in too, but you know, it's mostly dwarves. Let's be honest. <laughs> so Darsh gets his foot in the door of the first person to trade, both with the uh, retrieval and trafficking of dwarves back in and out, as well as immediately getting uh, some promises of some of the first goods to go to him. Not trying to get all of them, but some of the first goods to go through Darts' ship, which they have no ships. They would definitely like that. How long is a dwarven lifespan? On average, 300 years. Some of them have lived to be 400, uh, but 300 to 350 is normally considered old age. Unlike an elf who can live several thousand. Uh, but it just depends on the version. You know what I mean? Some versions play it older, some plays it very younger. Again, I'm going by second edition uh, ages, so it's again a little bit different. Um, so yes, there's all of that going on. And there's a party. And as they're hanging out and partying and drinking that night, and everybody, Dandy's telling her cool stories, and dwarves who normally would be irritated by Dandy are excited to hear the adventures of how they saved their kingdom, even though their hands are on their coin purses uh, at all times. Um, all of that's happening, all of this going on. Mercy starts talking to people, and there's drinking, and they're drinking with the dwarves. And one of the dwarves makes an interesting comment that immediately catches Mercy's attention. They said, thank goodness we have the ships from this Darsh fellow who's going to help us get in and out because it takes forever to go up through the northern mountain range and all the way around past and around the elven lands to get all the way over to like where Paxwell would be. It would take months of travel. Well, with having to go through the mountains with having to go through the lands that have changed, having to go through that, around that big, round, weird uh, gate-looking thing that's sitting there. And Mercy's like, excuse me? What was that you say? And they said, yes, just about a day and a half northeast of here is this big arch thing that uh, just appeared there appeared a while back, a few years ago. I don't know what it's for, but it's, you know, it's, we've checked it, can't damage it, can't scratch it, can't salvage it. We have no way of doing anything, so we got to go around it because, you know, it's just there in the middle of nowhere. And Mercy gets a real big smile on her face. Big one. Hopefully some of you will figure out why. So here's going to be the last thing we touch on today. This is what's going to set up next week. After a couple days of celebrating... Darsh and Mercy wake up one morning and, oh, their heads are killing them. They drank so much. So much. I look, Turtle, it's, uh, it's one of the realm gates that the uh, Mercy and them use their magic key to port from place to place in the world, which means Serenity is technically only a few days' travel from this kingdom if they use the realm gate. So, there's that. 
So, and she has a key and the dwarves do not, which means she also has the opportunity to start working into some type of trade. But not the trade you're thinking. We'll talk about that later. Something more important. But a couple days of celebrating, Dandy and Darsh wake up back on the Morgenstern. Wake up on the ship. They still go back there. So they're offered beds, but Darsh is like, you've got no beds for me, my friends. <laughs> so they manage to get boated back over. And even everybody on the ship, except Skeleton Crew, gets to come over and party. All the people are treated good. And uh, Dorham and everything make sure that everybody gets a chance to celebrate and stuff like that. Uh, and, and partake in it. And there's lots of drinking and partying. But they wake up one morning and the Darsh comes up to get a bite to eat. And as he's coming up out of his room onto deck, his hands blind from light, Mercy's coming up the same way. And they look at each other and they both start laughing quietly because they're hungover. But they start laughing because they just remember how much they drank the night before. Because again, Mercy, the, the only human Darsh has ever found that can keep up with him. Yeah, that's Buffy scooching by there. And Doram comes walking up and says, Captain, uh, there is a couple dwarves here asking to speak with you. This isn't uncommon. Dwarf was actually expecting uh, to meet with some of the merchants to work out some uh, actual technical stuff today. They're a little earlier than he thought, but he goes, okay. He goes, yes, uh, they're, you know, they're standing at the front of the boat. I always forget the name. I think it's the bow and the stern's in the back. He goes, yeah, sure. And he Darsh makes his way up there and Mercy comes with him. And they're pleasantly surprised to see Cole and another dwarf that looks kind of like Cole. Another very dark-skinned dwarf. And they get up there, and Cole is dressed like fancy. In fact, he has been given rank and as the dwarf, right? Because it doesn't matter how hard everybody worked. In this story, Cole was the main hero, right? The dwarves, he's the one that's going to go get a statue here, right? So he's got medals and shit. Like he's been also treated like a superhero uh, for doing for being part of all of this, right? Even though you know the heroes didn't take any away. Like yeah, he was nothing without him. He he did a lot of good stuff. Um, but he's there, and he acts a bit formal, and he introduces Darsh and Mercy to the current Thane of the Ventoy, and they're like. I was wondering if we could speak to you. And Thane says, you know, the Thane says that. And Darsh and Mercy are like, sure. And Dorham shows up. There's a little, they're sitting down. They just kind of have a seat. There's like some benches alongside the boat. And they're kind of just relaxing there at the, and enjoying the view and trying not to be too hungover. And Dorham brings some more drinks for them. And Mercy and Darsh will eat a bowl of fruit and cheese and whatever. You know, they a little breakfast. They entertain. The dwarves decline any of the food because it's not meat and dwarves aren't going to waste their time on vegetables fruits. But uh, they're like, hey, okay. So they're talking. And Cole says, so I heard that you'll be with us for about a month at least while you're waiting on Dubrin to finish his task. And Darshimer's like, yes, uh, sadly we're, we're hoping it gets done a little earlier, but it's important to us that it be done right, so however long it takes. Uh, but the day it's, the day it's done, we're gone. I mean, we, gotta, we gotta get out of here. At this time, Artemis and Dandy, along with Ulrich, show up. Ulrich looking miserable. Because while Ulrich can drink, Ulrich cannot drink like Mercy and Darsh. He tried. Oh, did he pay. He has a little bit of a green tinge to him right now. And Mercy's trying not to snicker. And him, her and Darsh looking at each other like, yeah, he tried. He tried. But he didn't do it. They come up and they sit down and they're hanging out. Tobias is not there currently. 
He's staying down in the city. He didn't come back to the boat. Again, the Thane is introduced to Dandy and Ulrich and Artemis. And the High Thane seemed very excited that Artemis was there. We were hoping you would join us. We wish to see if we can ask you for assistance in a very important matter. And Darshan and was like, well, of course, if we can, sure, we're here for a month, but what do you need? Darshan back to his like, ah, you want a deal? Okay, you want to you travel somewhere? You want some money? Blah, 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 blah. Can their livers process more alcohol than others? Darsh's probably could, because it's twice to three times the size of a regular liver. And Mercy just is someone who can handle a drink well. <laughs> Ooh, did they get toasted? Because uh, they actually role-played a little bit of that. There were some games and such they did. and Some throwing daggers and trying to beat each other, and the dwarves, everybody laughing and dancing and storytelling, all that kind of stuff. They got to role-play that a little bit. Um, but Cole says... As you know, as I've told you in the past and our adventures and stuff below, the story of my people. We got to visit the, the gate to our ancestral home that has not been opened in close to 450 years. More than twice as long as the rest of the clans have been exiled to the surface. And they're like, yeah, we understand that. He goes, again, as I mentioned originally, the reason that happened is because there was a sickness, a kind of plague, that attacked my people, and no one knew what caused it or where it was from. And though many tried, and we tried to find a way to cure it, our people began to die. And from what I hear from the stories, the decision was made by the Thane, our Thane, to close the gates so that the sickness could not spread to the other clans. And none of us have returned into that city ever since. And while we've tried to rebuild... Much like our hearts have been always wanting to return to Corman, we always hoped that one day we would have the opportunity to go back home as well. I've been speaking to my Thane, this is Cole talking, and went into great detail of what you guys can actually do. More detail in the story than was given before, and your abilities and what you have. And he's saying this, he keeps looking at Artemis. There is a way inside. Secret entrance that only the Thane knew about. I did not until he asked me to tell the whole story of what happened. And when I was done, he told me that there was a secret way back inside, but that no one ever dared go inside for fear of releasing the plague. But there's never been anyone here as powerful a healer as you, my lady. They say to Artemis. We know that you have a mission and that you're off to save a loved one and we know how important that is. We would never ask you to give up on that, but if you would be willing to go with Cole back down and use this entrance to go inside and see, is the plague still there? Is it something you can cure? You're the only one here that we've ever had who might be able to do it. But if you could find a way to get inside and, and, and find out that it's safe, it's been 400 years. For all we know, the plague is gone and dead as there's been no one left live in there. If you could go in and maybe 
find if there's a plague. If there is, cast your spells to heal it. If there's a way you could return our ancestral home to us, we would pay you so much. The treasure of our clan is huge and has been sitting there untouched for almost 500 years. If you would help us, we would reward you with incredible amounts of wealth. In fact, when someone says a chest, they mean a big pirate chest. You would have your choice. Each of you can walk into our treasury, fill a chest with anything you find there, and take it with you. Jewelry, gems, weapons, coins beyond coins. Fill a chest each, take whatever you want. Because I guarantee you'll find things to put in that chest that would allow you to buy kingdoms. Nothing's off limits. They sit there and look at each other and they're like, it would take, if we hurried, it would take probably about four or five days to get back down there, five more to get back up. That's ten days. Dubert said a month, we're going to say that's 30 days. That gives us 20 days to go through the secret passage, get in there, try to find and cure a plague that no one else could cure, and then get back up here in time. And Darsh and Mercy look at each other, and Mercy's about to say, she's literally about to say the words, well, I think that we can talk about this and see... That's what she's going to say. But as she opens her mouth, she hears Artemis say, Yes, I will go. And everybody turns to Artemis like... it's not Artemis is not usually the one who makes decisions. She's very diplomatic and they all talk it out. But this is the first time Artemis has ever spoken for all of them. Artemis just goes, Whether my friends come or not, I would never ask that of them. Though I would hope. Knowing that there's a disease, a plague down there, I could not, as a healer, walk away from an opportunity destroy, cure, heal, whatever that case may be. Especially if it comes to returning you to your homes. More importantly, there's the potential of a disease out there that might someday, if it is in there, somehow find a way out and get to the rest of you. And I'll be honest, I think my friends will agree, we did not go through all of this just to see you lose your home again. Yes, I will go, and if it's within my power to destroy or remove any such plague or disease, I swear to you I will do so. And stop, you can't drink from straws, kitty. Stop that. <laughs> and Mercy and Darsh looked in here and are like, guess we're going back down then. And Ulrich, at that moment, stands up and runs to the side of the boat and all you hear is, <laughs> and that's how we end the story for today. Hey, Buffy. I know you want your treats. you got to give me a minute to finish up the stream. <laughs> so let me see what I missed here. Uh, uh, buh, 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 buh. Like most games of d d it's just five people meet in a tower and a few years they become gods. Of course, in other games, some people are rolled in. Again, people try to power game, and finding people who just want to live through the story and aren't in a hurry to level up, because it's always understood that when you get to a certain level, you have to retire your characters, because it's just almost impossible to challenge you without having you fight gods and stuff. Um... So normally for us, it runs along 
20th level is normally where I have people retire. If you can get that far, which is rare in itself, um, just not only because it's hard, but groups staying together long enough to do that. But if someone does try to get to 20th level, then normally at that point, we're going to retire those characters. It's not to say they may not pop out time and again. I may say, oh, hey, special adventure, pull those guys out. Something big's happening and we need them. Um, but usually, you retire a character at a certain point. So um, people who are really enjoying the game, they get to a point where they stop worrying about experience because they don't want their characters to level too much higher. They like playing them so much, they don't want their story to end. Um, and that, of course, is very flattering when people are like, oh, no, I don't want to level, I'd rather just play some more. <laughs> but yes, this uh, funny ending, that's also how I ended it with them as well. I, I remembered that. That is exactly how I finished that story with them. And so next week, even though we finished the main Corman quest, while we're waiting for Duberin to physically repair Menandra, we are going back down again to the very bottom of Corman to try to take back the clan land of the Ventoy for potentially a large amount of wealth. And who knows what the dwarves may have in that little giant treasure room of theirs. Level 12, well, there's creatures out there, but I'm just saying it's, it becomes boring. How do you wrap a story around that? An adventure can't just be, I'm going to go there and fight that guy. You have to have challenges along the way. It's hard to come up with multiple challenges and storylines walking across the average land where you're going to come across things that are going to challenge characters that high. It's just, it's not easy as a DM or as a player, to be honest with you. So we normally drop it. We, at that point, we retire their characters, although it's only ever happened a couple times. Sometimes people get auto-jumped. Like when Rafe and Nylat... When I stopped playing with those guys, they became NPCs. They basically jumped up to that level. As NPCs, I, I just automatically cranked them up to the level I needed them to be, to be kings and bad guys and such of a challenge. Um, but, you know, it's always the uh, same. So, message of questions. I have absolutely no idea when the D&D &D thing is going to happen. I can tell you that when it does, uh, the first set of players are going to be members first. I've promised that that's going to be a membership perk. So the first playthrough, the first couple sessions uh, streamed are going to be offered to members first. If there's not enough members, I'll then look to other people. Um, but again, they're going to be one or two day adventures and then I'll switch groups. So it's not like I'm going to be playing for weeks with the same people. Uh, there'll be a couple of different ones. Probably the mods and long-term members will very likely be first. Um, because again, I know them. And it's, it's another perk of membership. You know what I mean? I'm always looking for new perks to give the membership. Uh, the members do so much for supporting the channel and helping it grow that I, I can't really say no to that opportunity. Um, but again, it's going to be short adventures, and then I'll open up to more people, and the next one will be more people, and the next one will be more people, and then eventually, once I have enough characters whittled down, because not everybody's character is going to live, and not everybody's character is going to work as well or fit into the story. Some people may not want to play again. Some people may not like it. So, in that situation, uh, as the characters from the adventure start crisscrossing to do other things... Uh, people, some people will play more, some people will play less, but everybody that I, I still want in as part of that story will have the opportunity to come back. Uh, favorite race, favorite PC, favorite NPC. Uh, I'll start with favorite class. I like playing mages. I like human mages. I like minotaur warriors. 
Um, I like human rogues. I like to play human rogues, and I like to play them uh, daggers. Well, some of them I'll do range daggers, some I'll do melee daggers, but I'm a big rogue dagger person. Uh, so I really enjoy that. Uh, so for favorite race to run as an NPC uh, is probably dwarves. Love running dwarves as an NPC. I just think there's so much depth that people don't give dwarves quite as much credit as the, uh, and, and flesh them out as much as they can be. So I was excited to finally bring some dwarves in. And I'm hoping that down the road at least somebody is going to want to play one of these uh, clans of one of these types of dwarves. That's why I have six different types of clans of them. Uh, so it's almost like a completely different type of race for each one uh, people can pick from. So hopefully there'll be some people who may want to play dwarves. Um, favorite NPC that I have, I mean, always has to, is going to fall down to Draven. Uh, not just because he's my namesake, but because I created him as the NPC I've always wanted. And then I have two more favorite NPCs. Two more favorite ones you guys have never met yet. And they're my second and third favorite. Well, you might have kind of almost met one. Ooh, is that a cliffhanger? Uh, but one of them will meet relatively soon. Is there possible for a mage kender? I can guarantee you there's a possibility of a mage kender. There's a possibility of a mage kender in this story. We're just not there yet. Uh, will it be done through Discord or how are you thinking? Uh, probably going to use cams. Uh, I, I would want to do video cams. There's also some online apps you can use for rolling. Um, and not to sound cheesy, but when you use those apps, we all can see the rolls, so I don't have to worry about people cheating. I'll probably, at least in the first couple, I would rather have people actually use cams. Because um, I'll definitely be using them. And uh, it may work out kind of like a members-only stream, where I just give the link to those other folks. Um, I'm still working out the technicals on that. But I'd like to be able to see the players. I, I just, I feel there's a better connection there. Uh, favorite PC in this group? Um, I've always been a big fan of Darsh. Um, I liked what Darsh, how she played him with him wanting to be a merchant. And his goal was to build a fleet and have his own islands, which he has now. And they'll be developing here very soon. Um, I really liked the way they did Darsh. Um, but other than Darsh, I'm a really big fan of Dandy. Uh, Dandy, of all the Kender I've seen played, or even played myself, uh, I thought she was the best played Kender. Uh, even better than I played Thickaway Tricklebush back in the day. And I liked playing him a lot. Uh, but the young lady who played Dandy was really good at playing a Kender. And was really good of having that character grow based on the experiences she had. Sometimes she became a little more serious, like when Michael was in danger and things of that nature. Um... There, I really like the way she grew that character. So she would probably be my second. I love them all. Don't get me wrong. There's not one that I dislike. But if I had to pick a favorite too, it'd be Darshan Dandy. Um, how's the shop thing in Sky Factory 4? Haven't touched it yet. Again, I've had PC issues, so I haven't been able to play any Minecraft in the last three days. I'm hoping I have the issue slightly fixed. It appears that it might be an overheating problem. Um, so... That's potentially what it is. If it's an overheating problem, well, I had to, I looked like one of the wires had come loose on the power side and the one of the fans wasn't going. But even with everything up and running, I think it still may be overheating. So right now I'm running it without the glass on. 
Um, and I'm going to spend some time tomorrow booking into some games for a couple hours to see if I can stress it to... I'm trying to get it to crash so I can see if I fixed it or not. Um, all right. So at this point, guys, I'm going to call that because we're actually at 11 o'clock. Uh, I appreciate all the questions and such. Feel free to hit me up with more of them on the Merged Worlds uh, thread on our Discord channel. I do keep up on that a lot. If you're not a member of my Discord, man, you're missing out. Go to my website, onlydraven.com. There's a button at the top you can click on that'll take you right in there. We would love to have you. Um, also, of course, uh, if you enjoyed the stream today, please be sure to click like. Most importantly, remember to subscribe, so that way you can hang out with us on all of our adventures. And um, consider our membership program. We have 76 members right now. That's awesome. Uh, 76 members. Uh, membership gives you a lot of perks, such as access to our members-only uh, Minecraft servers, uh, members-only streams, which, for the record, that's next Sunday. We just This is our third week of Merge, Real, Merge Worlds in a row. So next Sunday will be a members-only stream. So there will not be a Merge Worlds next week, but there will be Merge Worlds for three weeks after that. Okay, so again, uh, consider a membership. It's like a Twitch sub, only cheaper, $2.99 a month, and you get a ton of stuff. And you will definitely also get priority opportunity to jump into live D&D when we do that. Uh, so that's a perk. All right, guys, I'm going to call that a night. Thank you for coming by and hanging out with me. It's been a ton of fun. As always, special thank you to my members for all of the support uh, that you give and helping this channel grow as well to those of you who keep donating and donate to the channel uh, your charity is overwhelmingly appreciated as well I do my best to put as much of that back into the channel as I can and get closer to making this a full time gig so we can play D&D all the time and other stuff too extra special thank you to my moderators because you do more work than I do <laughs> and it's the hard stuff no I really appreciate you guys and all the help you give uh, so give a big thanks to them when you have the opportunity or you see them in discord but you all have yourself a wonderful evening I'm going to give some kitties some treats and I'll be streaming again tomorrow at 6pm eastern hopefully with some minecraft if not something else <laughs> you guys have yourselves a wonderful day <laughs>